Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Mackenzie, what is today's fact? Like hot chocolate, all Hallmark movies taste about the same, but they warm you right up. That's so good. Okay. We're going to be doing a Hallmark movie roundup today, slash holiday Christmas movie that the Hallmark brand kind of cemented. And to do that, we also brought in a Hallmark Christmas movie expert, a returning <laughs> guest and friend, Jody. Hi, Jody Troutman. Hi. I don't drink the hot chocolate, but I do warm myself with wine. That works. Also good. Dedicated Hallmark correspondent, Jody. <laughs> so it's like going to a war zone <laughs> where the bombs are going off behind me, but instead of bombs, they're like giant small town Christmas trees. <laughs> you gotta do the tree lighting ceremony. It's really important for the community. Or something. Your community of seven people. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about what a Hallmark Christmas movie is first before we dive into our collective films that we have brought to the table. I know that three of us, we just love the Hallmark schlock. And then there's Kit, who is today's Scrooge, the Bah Humbug. <laughs> I have nicknamed her Crushing Disappointment, the Elf. <laughs> yeah, the Hallmark Christmas movies were not a big thing in Canada, and they're not a big thing in the UK. They may be an entirely American phenomenon, near as I can tell. Oh, see, that's the interesting part, though, because, like, according to my friends who live over in Victoria, where they film a lot of the exteriors for Hallmark Christmas movies, there's sections of town that are just permanently, like, just glitzed up in Christmas crap. I want to be there. <laughs> yeah. Look, folks, they make, like, 20 of these every year at minimum. This year, it was, like, 100-something, so... Fuck. 20 seems like a low ball. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. They make so many of these. It is a whole industry. Like, this isn't even counting, like, the rest of the year romance movies that Hallmark pumps out. This is the Christmas variety. The Hallmark Christmas movie industrial complex. Yes, with one <laughs> or two mentions of Judaism. <laughs> this year, I believe there is a Groundhog's Day Hanukkah movie. Don't forget. Last year, there was a Hanukkah movie starring Jeremy Jordan. So, giving you that shout out right now. <laughs> it was called Hanukkah on Rye. He owned a deli. Oh my god. <laughs> of course he did. Also, 99.99999% extremely straight. Yes. And then they'll occasionally be like, this one's a gay one. And it's sad. Usually the safe Hallmark queerness is two gay men who wear cozy sweaters and want to adopt. Yep. It has been a slight uptick in the queer coded best friend actually just being a lesbian and having like a gay brother sometimes. This mild susuration in the waters is actually what drove noted Christmas queen Candace Cameron Burr to her own network. <laughs> With no blackjack and no hookers because it's extremely conservative Christian. <laughs> to her solo house. It is no longer full. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hallmark Christmas movies always involve so many former child stars and even just like adult stars that were in teen roles like Lacey Chevert, whose father was the inventor of Toaster Strudel and will be very upset to hear about this. Lacey Chevert's cottage industry are these Christmas movies. 
I can't believe you think I like attention. For some reason, Melissa Joan Hart just ended up on like a different channel making some of these occasionally, which is weird because you think that Clarissa Explains It All would be perfect for this. You're not wrong, but also Melissa Joan Hart is maybe the one that sucks the most as a human being. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. But we also have like two out of the three kids from Full House on here. Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen did not decide to get into this industry. <laughs> yeah, they're too busy being, I guess, fashion industry moguls, among other things. You know, they got some projects. They got stuff going on. I like to imagine they retired and they have a ranch somewhere. That sounds nice. Just as twins riding horses. Yeah. I like them being witches like they were in Beastly. That's right. They did play a witch. Yeah, no, as someone who was born in the same year as the Olsen twins and was definitely turning 18 the same year that everybody was like, oh my god, the Olsen twins are legal now. Yeah, I hope they're doing fine. Uh... Yeah, that was definitely the grossest thing I can recall being on, you know, public television (laughs) for a while. The news, basically. (laughs) So these movies, they are all exactly the same. They have very little variation. There's usually somebody with a big Christmas deadline who works in business, who has to learn an extremely secular meaning of Christmas with, you know, overtones in a very small town, usually ostensibly in Vermont. Sometimes it's in a country we made up in Europe, so there could be a prince. There are multiple countries they made up in Europe. I feel like they're all just cuddling up to the borders of Latveria, personally. (laughs) I mean, that is also canonical in the Netflix cinematic universe, which is a thing we're not getting into this time. No, there is so much in the Netflix cinematic universe that we have to save that for another episode down the line. Three Vanessa's Hudgen. Oh, there are four of them. Oh my god, there's four now. I feel like every time popular culture puts another country in Eastern Europe, the Black Sea just gets a little bit smaller. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they're all just really small, though. They're like the Rhode Islands of Europe. So we've got like Liechtenstein style. (laughs) And they're all definitely places where like anyone who has some kind of like noble title is actually involved in local politics. Very integral to it, in fact. They're very generous monarchies. Yeah. (laughs) That everybody loves. They're benevolent rulers. Benevolent. Completely benevolent. How do the roads look? (laughs) Not great. If they're not going to a small, ostensibly British country, everyone speaks British English. I like to think they were colonized a long time ago. Yeah. They go to like a teeny tiny little town that's just sort of the same two exterior sets. They meet a handsome woodworker who wears flannel, who probably knows or fathered a precocious child who really wants this paternal figure to bang this lady. (laughs) And then that teaches her the meaning of Christmas because the big choir concert something. That's about it, right? Yeah, question mark at the end, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And then an extremely chaste smooch. Though sometimes they kiss earlier and it's scandalous. Well, sometimes they kiss earlier and then they immediately have a falling out. You're right. You're right. We definitely go with like musical structure here. 
Oh, speaking of structure, here's the thing. These are TV movies and television is, we've talked about act structure before on other episodes, like our End of the Woods episode, but act structure in television is weird because you actually break up the acts by commercial breaks and you follow the structure from there. And these are movies that are like an hour and 24 minutes each. So they have like six to eight commercial breaks, which means there's six to eight acts. And people have written about this. Mackenzie, you looked it up like we ended up finding the nine act structure. And Mackenzie, I believe you had some like good titles for these acts. Yeah, well, I didn't. I came up somebody on Reddit came up with them. Because <laughs> I was like, Hallmark act structure. And this person said, I figured out what to name these. So I've got like a list of names and the explanation this person on Reddit came up with that suits it very well. All right, what do we got? So we've got the intro, which is someone, usually a woman, is leading a, a pretty happy but busy life. There's the complication, which requires the lead to travel somewhere, which is, you know, how they're going to meet. Usually a Christmas deadline because everyone does business over Christmas. They've all got to get the big account by Christmas. There's the chance encounter where the love interests meet and they start getting introduced to each other. There's the challenge where they have more and more encounters because they're annoying each other and having to get in each other's way. There's the warm up where they actually start getting along with each other and starting to work together. There's the near kiss, which doesn't necessarily actually have to be a near kiss, just them getting romantically inclined, or maybe somebody trips and falls and they stare at each other's eyes. <laughs> There's the misunderstanding where they get mad at each other and break apart. Maybe the lead has to travel back to her town to talk to her boss about the situation. <laughs> then there's the reconciliation where they actually get back together again and talk it out or communicate like actual adults. And it's at this point where they start getting back on track and their feelings start to show that they're requited. Uh, and then there's the happy ending where they end up staying together and there's a chase kiss. You'll also have like lots of recurring characters in here, like the sassy slash quirky slash queer coded best friend, the person of color who is in some sort of position of authority around the tiny town because it's diverse, the precocious child who really wants the parental figures to bang. You'll usually have somebody's parent because this movie is going to be made not only for like 50 year old moms, but also their 80 to 90 year old grandmas too, who just want to live out the fantasy of having a nice young man who listens to his elders and respects hmm. his grandma and also feels like he can open up emotionally to her and then will take her advice. There's a lot of parental reconciliation that involves one brief conversation where the parent who has been antagonistic in the child's life slash adult child's life is always like, I just want to live my own life. And he's like, I never meant to make you feel like you couldn't live your own life. I love you and I'm proud of you. Conflict resolved. Hmm. I just, I love these movies. I love these movies so much. They're so dumb. When you refer to it as like a warm cup of cocoa, it really is. It's like, it's a tradition. And the fact that it's always the same is kind of a selling point. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, oh, I'm going to try this new brand of cocoa. And it's still going to be cocoa. It just <laughs> might taste a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. John and I will joke every year that you can pretty much just turn on the Hallmark Channel anytime from like Thanksgiving until New Year's, and you will be able to tell within about five minutes what the plot of the movie is, what point in the plot you're at, how much longer the movie has, the plot points that are about to happen, because they are all exactly the same. Yeah, and that's appealing. It is. It's comfort food. It's a blanket. You like, you snuggle up. 
and you just live with this workaholic lady for an hour and a half, and it feels good. <laughs> and she gets to have what she wants. She decides to have a work-life balance in this cozy town and sell real estate there. And it's like a repeated thing of wish fulfillment, right? Because, yeah. like, I'm a workaholic young lady in the big city, but maybe I just want to move out and have a nice small town Christmas and meet some nice person that drives a truck. Maybe I can just get a hunky person who drives a truck to just, you know, take care of me emotionally. They drive that truck. They drive that truck, though. So good. And then maybe Santa lives in town, the real one? Wink. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> oh, okay. But because these movies are all the same, to that end, we actually each watched a different movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of these are actually markedly different films. Yeah, I think this is going to be good. Let's go around the table. Mackenzie, what did you bring to the table? What's the log line for that one? I brought The Spirit of Christmas, which is 12 days before Christmas. Kate is trying to close the sale of a historic inn called the Hollyhock Inn, only to find Daniel, the ghost of a man who died a century ago, and he needs her help to unravel the mystery of his annual holiday haunting. A handsome yet yet cursed cursed ghost. ghost. God, I truly love that movie so much. Who mysteriously has modern hairs fashion and not 1920s hair fashion. Sounds normal. Jody, what did you bring? I brought to the table one December night. Two music managers must put their history aside to oversee the televised reunion performance of their rock star fathers with a fractured past. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's like Simon and Garfunkel broke up and then moved to a small town next to each other, and also their children possibly need to fuck. Amazing. All right, Kit, what did you bring? All right, on our producer Lucas Brown's recommendation, I ended up watching Love Always Santa. After losing her husband Bradley three years ago on Christmas Day, Celia Banks never thought she'd fall in love again. Now her entire world revolves around taking care of her extraordinarily precocious daughter, Lily. Lily writes a letter to Santa with one wish for her her mommy to be happy and find love again. This whole movie is basically, hey, what if the cuck boyfriend from our other movies got his own (laughs) Christmas movie? (laughs) (laughs) Annie, what did you bring to the table? I brought 2017's Finding Santa, where Grace is thrilled to be taking over the town's Christmas parade. But when the man playing St. Nick breaks his arm, she needs to find a replacement, even if the replacement, his estranged son, is unwilling. My movie's about a man who is just sort of forcibly pulled into Christmas cheer against his will and is kind of beaten with it until he decides that it's not all that bad. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like most of my friends in real life. (laughs) Oh, I also, because I'm me, I did look up a couple of things about my movie. First off, it stars Stephanie from Full House, so not Candace Cameron Burr, the other one. Good for her. She recovered. Yeah. It stars Eric Winter, which is his real name. I think with a name like Eric Winter, you have to do Hallmark Christmas movies like it's required by law. He had a destiny. Here's the thing. This dude was among many, many other television appearances in, I think this is real, 411 episodes of Days of Our Lives from 2000 (laughs) to 2005. (laughs) That tracks. Credited as Rex Brady, Rex Demira, Rex, and Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Just an entirely different guy. (laughs) Entirely different guy. Or was it? (laughs) 
he also was in Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. Okay, that's a lot. Also as Rex. Also as Rex. <laughs> and or Scott. <laughs> it was also directed by a guy who has directed a bunch of other Hallmark movies, but also notably, Turbo, a Power Rangers movie. <laughs> so I'm very sad that that one didn't end in the snail. Oh, sure, sure. You know, no, it would have been great if it was Turbo, the movie about the snail who goes fast instead of slow. But this one's Power Rangers, and I'm going to be imagining that that just keeps taking place off screen. <laughs> also, it's a road trip movie, and Turbo's the one with the cars. I love this dude that only directs Hallmark Christmas movies, like... That's his job. Like, he goes into the office, nine to five. He's like, yep, I'm going to go to another small town. I'm going to film people falling in love. I'm going to go home, have some scotch, watch some By TV. another small town, apparently that means Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they film these so frequently, back to back to back. It seems like it's like, you start doing this, that's just your job now. Like, that is a steady ass paycheck. Can you imagine? I mean, when you're working in the entertainment industry, there are worse things to be doing. It's true. You don't even have to think too hard. Everything's already there for you. You just got to fill out the Mad Libs, really. Exactly. Okay, let's start in on Act 1s. My first act was like, and the Act 1 is going to be the longest one. My first act was 25 minutes long. Mine had seven acts total. Mine opens with our small town montage of locations where you find that it's Christmas. We've got the block of shop set where everyone's carrying Christmas stuff. And we meet Grace, who runs the all year round Christmas store, Happy Holidays. And she has been doing this since her parents died when she was in high school. And she took over the family store, which as a helpful old lady who is in the shop, also explains to the camera <laughs> that everyone who runs the Christmas shop also handles the Christmas parade, and it's the 50th annual Christmas parade. And Grace's grandparents started the first one, and this is what the town is famous for, and Grace's grandparents and parents will be so proud that Grace kept their legacy going. Good for her. Just so we're clear. <laughs> we also get our Christmas deadline because the network program Good Day USA is going to be viewing the annual Christmas Eve morning remote broadcast is a real phrase, even though it's not annual Christmas Eve morning because the parade will eventually get delayed to 6 p.m. But Grace is now in charge of a televised event for the town of Green River, Connecticut? Somewhere on the East Coast. And this is going to end up being like a big problem because Grace has to now make sure that the whole town's economy works because of this Christmas parade, which I don't know if you've ever been to a small parade in a small town, but it's like the fire truck. The Shriners. I've almost been to a parade like that. When I was a traveling through Beaver, Utah, there were chairs lined up all down Main Street. Oh, yeah. But I just barely missed it. We had to keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, you almost missed the Cub Scouts and the high school's marching band. The entire economy hinges on this parade. But actually, the entire economy seems to hinge on Christmas because this town not only supports a 365-day-round Christmas shop, but also the Old St. Nick Santa School, established 1965, run by Tom White, who was voted the best Santa in America by the New York Times. He just runs a school training Santas to go out and be mall Santa? This dude is not the real Santa. He is not secretly the real Santa. I cannot stress this enough. He just <laughs> trains guys to wear Santa suits and go ho, ho, ho. 
Uh, I wonder how many Santas he lost. Is the New York Times in the habit of, like, voting superlative Santas? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? It's a cover story, even. (laughs) And you have to subscribe to see it so no one actually knows. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because 12-foot ladder don't work no more. For all we know, the New York Times does this all the time, but it's paywalled, so we can't see it. We could just go over to the Washington Post where Christmas time dies in darkness or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Washington Post is currently on strike, so don't go to the Washington Post. I mean, by the time this episode goes up. They may still be on strike. Yeah. (laughs) So we also meet Grace's quirky friend, Caroline, which if you're keeping track, we've got a name Grace. We've got a name Caroline, which is rooted in Carol. We're all up in on the Christmas names here. I thought it was rooted in Neil Diamond. (laughs) Oh. So Grace's friend Caroline is quirky. She has bangs. She wears her hair in buns for most of the movie, like two little space buns like Sailor Moon Dongo. She's your movie assigned friend who just wants her friend to bang. She's like, oh, you broke up with your ex, Mark, almost a year ago. And Grace is like, but Mark just didn't get Christmas. (laughs) Fucking Mark. He who owns the store must organize the parade. But here's the problem. The big linchpin of this whole operation is the Santa, is Tom, who runs the Santa school, who is going to be Santa, which I guess involves something more involved than sitting in a sleigh and waving at a crowd. And he slips on the ice. Oh, no. That goes into the complication for me, which technically is act two. All right, then we'll stop there for me. Yeah, that sounded like a fade to black. Yeah. And then to ads for, like, coffee and pills. Mine cut right to that, but I definitely agree that that seems like an act complication here. We haven't met the male lead yet, but that's for next time. Mm-hmm. That's for the chance encounter. Okay, so Jody, let's meet your movie. We start in the big city, all capitals. I think it's New York. We meet Quinn. Quinn. Quinn is a beautiful young lady who is a music producer. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I can see where this is going. Quinn is secretly the daughter of one member of an estranged musical duo. And the estranged musical duo is theoretically going to have a reunion concert for Christmas, but it's falling apart. (laughs) She is summoned forth by her boss to go get this thing back on the rails. By Christmas. <laughs> By Christmas, because that's when the concert is. That's the intro. I don't know how far we're going, because that literally is act one. Like, this lady's in New York City, and she gets forced to go back to a small town, and that's act one. That sounds good. Yeah. I don't know how much we're saving for the de- breakdowns. I don't know. These parts are a little awkward to try yeah. and, like, break down exactly, but... I think if we get our call to action, that's probably where we do the break. She gets summoned to her small town by a music producer to put on this concert. She has to go talk to her dad, who she hadn't talked to in quite some time. And her dad is Peter Gallagher, who I haven't seen since California. (laughs) (laughs) And he's a grumpy Scrooge now. Excellent. All right, then uh, let's pop over to Kit. How's it going over there? (laughs) All right. So 
And Love Always Santa, it starts with a girl writing to Santa saying that she wants her mom to find love again after her dad died. We quickly find out that our main character played by Marguerite Moreau, who I can't remember if I mentioned this on mic, but was in the really, really bad Queen of the Damned movie and then was also in The Mighty Ducks. So I have very conflicted emotions about her as an actress now. Thank you, Dwayne, but I'm no lady. I'm a duck! And Wet Hot American Summer. And Wet Hot American Summer, which I have not seen. That's my spectrum as Mighty Ducks to Queen of the Damned. That's the range of movies I've seen. She is actually already in the small town. She is raising her daughter in this little town in Kansas, which I think is a little further west than we are normally going for here. The girl, turns out, has written her letter specifically to a service in Chicago called Santa Inc. What? It's Santa Inc. Incorporated, but also Santa Inc., because it's it's with a K, because it, it, you rewrite to Santa and he writes back. Anyway, there's this... So it's Santa Ink Ink? Yeah, it's Santa Ink, <laughs> but also Santa Ink. And it's it's never quite clarified which is which. The point is, is that there's this writer guy who is supposedly a world famous novelist, but has writer's block. And he has signed up to this service to basically write letters to kids as Santa. And he is apparently recently divorced. I choose to believe that what happened is that he was married to one of the ladies in one of the other Hallmark movies who goes to a small town and leaves her big city boyfriend <laughs> so we get a visit from his agent who talks about being invited to this guy's invited to his thanksgiving dinner they're having chinese food i guess he's the jewish one and then this guy gets this letter from the girl which is like hey i want my mom to find love again and he writes this what's supposed to be this very eloquent and sweet letter but unfortunately it's a mediocre writer attempting to write what a brilliant writer would write so <laughs> it doesn't come out particularly well but it's like eight pages long and he sends it back and this girl is delighted to get this letter she's really touched by it she shows it to her mom the mom is really touched by it mom decides to write to this guy and say, thank you for, you know, helping my daughter with this. And then they start exchanging letters back and forth, apparently like up to two to three a day. They are not gutting back and forth that quick. It's just like she writes one letter and then she writes another letter and she writes another letter and sends them all on the same day, which seems like deranged behavior to me. That's wild. That is fucking wild. At one point, she's like, oh, yeah, in this era of like keyboards and screens and touch screens. Uh... It is so, she's trying not to say traditional, but she's saying traditional, reject modernity, embrace tradition, to write something by hand, etc., etc., etc. So they keep exchanging letters back and forth. And in the meantime, though, we don't have a best friend character. We have a sister character for Marguerite Moreau here, who is insisting that our main character needs to start. I don't have names for these characters. They slid right off my brain. But our main character, she th her sister thinks should start dating again. And there's this guy who was invited to Thanksgiving dinner. His name is Randy. Randy's living proof that men can be lesbians. <laughs> He's just this, this magnificent, boisterous lesbian of a man who is really, really interested after tasting the Thanksgiving dinner that Marguerite Moreau made in them going out because they've known each other since high school. And so finally, our main character decides, I'm going to go on a date with Randy, at which point she stops writing to Love Always Santa in Chicago, at which point he starts to worry, hey, what's going on? And eventually says to his agent, hey, can we go to this small town on a book tour type thing? So that's act one. And now for a handsome yet cursed ghost. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Our intro starts with the making of said handsome yet cursed ghost, where he's walking through the woods on a snowy winter's day, and he comes to a house which he pauses and smiles at, because you know that it's his house. And there's like a Christmas party going on. You can hear the distant sounds of the 12 days of Christmas playing on a piano and people singing. And then a woman steps out, and he whispers, 
Lily. And then a moment later, another man steps out. He furrows his brow and he goes, brother, as he's watching this from the <laughs> woods. And all he can see from the distance is them talking. And then brother embraces Lily. And as he's like looking shocked and horrified, a shadow steps out and bonks him on the head and he dies. You can just die from bonking. He just died from bonking. We then fast forward to modern day, where we're following Kate, who is sitting down for a romantic dinner, and across from her is a man in a suit, and you're like, ah, this is going to be like the standard proposal scene where she breaks up, and the guy like starts doing like the whole pre-proposal thing, and he's like, I am just not the man for you. And she's like, wait, so are you breaking up with me? And he goes, yes. And she goes, thank God. <laughs> they break up. And she's so happy about it. And she's like, everybody always breaks up with me because they say I'm too devoted to work. Oh, amazing. You know how it be. You know how it be. Yeah. She's occasionally called the ghost girlfriend because she oh. never shows up. She's parallels. I'm sure that won't come up later. She's then at work the next day and her boss shows up and is like, I've got the worst news. And she's like, tell me about it, boss. And he's like. The Forsyth Hollyhock Inn. Lady Forsyth has died and now the Hollyhock Inn must be appraised and put up for sale and they want it done before New Year's and you know I'm going to Aruba. And she's like, it's okay, boss. I never have Christmas plans. I'm happy to do this. <laughs> that is how we start getting her going to the small Hollyhock Inn in small town land. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this Small town, dear. I love that whenever they have a job, they have a business, it's like some sort of firm that has to get the account. <laughs> they gotta close that deal. <laughs> they do. By Christmas, because everyone's gonna be off on vacation after that. Yeah, because nobody's on vacation before Christmas. <laughs> no, they all wait until the stroke of midnight. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Next act, back over in Fighting Santa, we discover that Santa, aka Tom, who slipped on the ice, broke his arm in two places. And that means that because he broke his arm, he can't sit in a parade float and wave with his free hand. Monstrous. Could have been worse. Could have been murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Santa might have a cast and Santa can't have a cast, I guess. It's extremely unclear why this is a deal breaker. That breaks the Christmas magic. The real jolly old Saint Nick could just heal his arm. <laughs> the real Santa has bones made out of iron and is best friends with Merlin the wizard. <laughs> the real Santa has Wolverine regeneration powers. <laughs> it explains a lot. Christmas again. I gotta get out of here. All this good cheer is driving me nuts. Not enough people know about that. It's a secondary mutation that Santa has. <laughs> Actually, I know for a fact that Chris Sims has figured out how Santa works in the Marvel verse, and I think he might be a mutant. <laughs> anyway, he's like, okay, we have to call the Santa school to see if any of our students are free, but he's trained the Santas too well. They're all booked. Doing what? I don't know. Santa stuff. They're busy. Being in a mall? In a parade? Unclear exactly what the Santas do, just that they do a ho-ho-ho very well. <laughs> they spread Christmas cheer across the <laughs> world. It's an important job. They're tap dancing somewhere together. I don't know. So now they have to find an amateur Santa Claus. Then they hold additions in the Christmas shop. And it's like, Jim, the city councilman, has too many questions about the zoning requirements for a pony for Christmas. I have a question. Yes. Do any of these, like, 
interviews slash auditions say something like, Santa, it's me, Grandmama, and then drop like a boa? I wish. Damn. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's one man who she turns down because he's not beardy enough, which is like, Everyone in this room has a fake beard on. Even Tom, the Santa with a beard, wears a Santa beard. What are you talking about? But they're capped off by Mayor Harvey's son, Clint, an adult man who just reeks of being the worst, who sits down and he's like, yeah, I'm here to audition for Santa. But like, this is just a formality, right? Because I'm the mayor's son. So. (laughs) And his name is Clint. His name is Clint. Which does not endear me to him. Sorry, Clint. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom's wife, Holly, is like, there's only one person who can be Santa now. <laughs> That's our wayward son, Ben. Ben moved away from home after high school and college. He moved to Boston, which is within driving distance. He went through all the training and he was supposed to take over the family business, but he didn't want to follow in Santa's footsteps. (laughs) And there's like real lines like getting into a Santa suit is the last thing Ben wants to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wild fucking line. He just wants to wear his socks cap and eat beans. So Grace calls Ben up and Ben's like, I know why you're calling, but I'm not a Santa. I'm a writer. (laughs) She's like, how about doing it for an old high school buddy? And Ben is like, absolutely. We were not friends in high school. I was a senior and you were a freshman. Absolutely not. That's not how high school friends work. (laughs) Yeah, he would have gotten beat up for that. Justifiably so, frankly. Also, if that relationship extended beyond senior year, he would have gone to jail. Yup. Meanwhile, Leslie from the network is here and she's like, oh my God. Like she only enters scenes by like throwing her whole body into them. (laughs) She's like, Grace, Grace, do you have a Santa? If you can't find a Santa, I'll have to let the network know and it would be very bad for all of us. And Grace is like, "Uh, yes, I do. I just have to go get him. And Grace is like, oh, my God, why did I say that? What am I going to do? And Tom says, oh, pray for a nor'easter to scrap the whole thing. I mean, what's she going to do? Drive to Boston and drag Ben back? And Grace is like, I have an idea. (laughs) So Grace drives down to Boston to Tom's ostensible office, which is a coffee shop. Ben shows up and she has a photo of him. And she's like, hi, I'm looking for Ben White. Do you know him? And he's like, oh, no, nope, mm -mm, nope, never heard of him. At which point the barista says, Ben, I have your coffee, Ben, my regular Ben. Hello, Ben. Here's your coffee. No fucking way she gets that guy's name right. Actually, Ben does get the coffee, sits down, and is like, no, I can't help. I'm busy working on my novel. Let me start typing right now. And she's like, you are absolutely fake typing. (laughs) He's like, no, I'm not. And she's like, okay, so really the title of your novel is, and she looks over his shoulder, (laughs) Sliverchinson? Yes, it's a coming-of-age piece set in Sweden, leave me alone. He also mentions he's a rideshare driver, at which point Grace gets up, leaves the cafe. Ben immediately gets a request on his rideshare app to get a ride to the train station, at which case he comes outside. And Grace is like, oh, wow, what are the odds? Amazing! You can take me to the train station. By that, I mean Green River, Connecticut. And he's like, "Uh, fine. Beautiful. 
There's two quick scenes where they flirt on their drive back home. They stop by the Santa school where the assistant at the Santa school receives a call, an emergency call from one of their Santas out in the field who needs to know how to say Merry Christmas in Gaelic. Ben instantly provides the answer and then says, well, real Santa can speak to any child in the world, so our helper Santas will do whatever it takes. (laughs) And they have another argument where Grace is like, your dad just wanted you to take on the family business. He just wanted to pass that joy on to you. And Ben is like, but I wanted the freedom to choose, Grace. I can't live my dad's life as a Santa. Playing Santa Claus may have been the opportunity of your lifetime, but I don't want your life. And I cannot stress enough that this is not a real Santa Claus taking over the family business that is Santa Claus. This is just like a guy that trains small Santas. (laughs) Yes, because as we all know, you can't take over a Santa unless you murder Santa. True. (laughs) Exactly. You have to ascend to Santahood by killing your father. Anyway, that's when we hit my first commercial break. So that's an act break for me. Wow, they give you a lot of stuff before that. Yeah, they really throw a lot into there. A lot of like, I can't live your life, Santa. Yeah, mine is pretty leisurely paced in comparison to whatever the hell is happening over there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so back in the small town where a girl named Quinn grew up. She goes to visit her father, Peter Gallagher, who is an ex-musician. And like I said, he's being a Scrooge. He doesn't want to do this reunion concert. He just wants to pout in his house alone. His house, which, to be clear, has no Christmas decorations on it. (gasps) No Christmas decorations? Monstrous. He hasn't had Christmas decorations up since mom died. Oh, he's sad. Poor Peter Gallagher. His giant eyebrows are permanently (laughs) frowny. (laughs) Quinn has to fix this. And she can't fix one of the problems, which is that apparently this house that Peter Gallagher lives in is now a tourist attraction because it was on the cover of one of his albums. So there's like tour buses there all the time. And so he can, like, walk out his door and yell at them every once in a while. That's fun. Which I would find entertaining if I was him, but... I would set up booby traps. Yeah, you can have fun with it. You can, like, nail the tires of the bus with spikes anyway. So (laughs) Quinn flees her father's house and goes to talk to the other half of this rock duo, who is Bruce Campbell. (laughs) Right, Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Wait. Wait, what? (laughs) Bruce Campbell. Noted musician Bruce Campbell. (laughs) Who is the other half. Noted guy from every Sam Raimi movie, Bruce Campbell. Noted, but did you know trivia, IMDb, Bruce Campbell's first Christmas movie. Honestly, given the sheer density of movies that Bruce Campbell has been in, I find that amazing. I have to believe that there was like- I seem to recall. Was there like a burn notice Christmas special? (laughs) Uh, that's not what I'm remembering. What I'm remembering is that he was in an episode of The Librarians where he did play Santa okay. Claus. Okay, well, <laughs> that was a television program and not a feature film such as this. This is a movie on television. This is a Christmas movie. <laughs> this is art. <laughs> so she goes to visit Bruce Gamble. Who is the other half of the divorced musicians. Of course. He has been doing quite well. He wanted to keep playing music, so he's had, like, a fairly middling solo career, just coasting off the fame of the duo's success. 
and he is managed by his son, Quinn's childhood friend that she hasn't seen in a very long time. Uh-oh. The extremely hunky Brett Dalton. <laughs> oh, no. Who some might remember as the hunky but evil agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> Is he dreamy and down to he earth? Is. Are they sarcastic at each other? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's barely holding his family business together because his dad's infuriating. But he is very handsome. And he does actually look like he could be Bruce Campbell's son. I think he got hired because he's very handsome and has an impressive chin. <laughs> I mean, there are worse things to be hired for. And so, Brett Dalton, what the fuck's his name? They don't have names in these movies. Jason. He's Jason. <laughs> Jason, a real name. Yes, a real name. He's a, he has a real boy name. <laughs> He's trying to help his father score gigs while also trying to pull this concert together. And Bruce Campbell, he's signing like record sleeves and whatnot. But, and this is important for later, he keeps forgetting things in his old age. <gasps> oh, no. He'll do things twice and forget that he has appointments. And they don't touch on this for a very long time surprisingly long time this is a put a pin in it and then walk very far away from it yeah it is Chekhov's forgetfulness <laughs> <laughs> it's so forgetful that the movie forgot about it so quinn goes to see jason and bruce campbell and apparently one of the big sticking points is that for the christmas special they were supposed to play their like biggest hit song which was also a christmas song Called One December Night. Of course. But Peter Gallagher doesn't want to play the song because the song was written about his dead wife. <laughs> oh, my God. Who is also Quinn's mother. I guess you can infer that. <laughs> now, Jason and Quinn have figured out how to get their dads back together again while also getting over their own personal strife because they also haven't talked in a very long time. See, this is the part where you just, you know... Get some similar haircuts and start parent trapping your musical dads. You're not completely wrong because they do initially attempt a parent trap, <gasps> which is... No! <laughs> I mean, they don't twinsy up, but they decide to switch parents for a second. They're like, okay, maybe you can be nicer to my dad and my dad will be nicer to you because you're not me. Amazing. Now, the handsome agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. has to go deal with Peter Gallagher and then Quinn has to deal with Bruce Campbell, which is a much easier job. <laughs> And I think that's where my break happens. All right. How's Love Always Santa doing? <laughs> well, the second act and the third act, I think, kind of bleed together a little bit. So this part's going to be pretty short. But yeah, mine also included the chance encounter for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. The complication has been introduced in the fact that like, oh, this lady has mysteriously stopped writing and she stopped writing because she decided to go on like one date with this magnificent lesbian in her hometown. So our author character has decided that he is going to accept one of the many appearance requests at a bookshop. He decides that he's going to go to this town in Kansas. And in the meantime, Marguerite Moreau goes on the date with this guy and is not terrifically enthusiastic about it, but her sister keeps pressuring her to kind of try and make it work with this guy because the sister is miserable in her marriage and she wants to make sure that everybody else is just as miserable as she is. For some reason, the idea of Marguerite Moreau just not dating anyone does not come up at any point, but whatever. 
I think this act would probably end right around the time that the daughter is passing by the bookshop in town and sees that the author of The Christmas Bow, which is the book that she said is her favorite book at the start of the movie, is going to be visiting the bookshop, and it is our Santa writer guy. So it turns out that, yeah, he's personally responsible for writing her favorite book, which I'm sure will make her not biased at all when it comes to which one her mom should date. Should you get a new book daddy or a new lesbian daddy? Okay, Mac. Okay. How's our handsome yet cursed ghost? Our Kate shows up at the Hollyhock Inn. She shows up just in time to meet with her appraiser. But as she arrives, the appraiser is running out and going, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And he climbs into his car and drives off without talking to her. So she then heads inside the Hollyhock Inn using her key, where she's greeted by an old man whose name I can't remember. And he's like, oh. I see your appraiser's already gone, so you shouldn't be here. And she's like, yeah, I don't know why he left. He goes, oh, it's because the ghost. And she's like, what? There's ghost? And he goes, yeah, it's okay. He doesn't really do anything to harm people. He's just assertive sometimes. And she's like, well, that's too bad. I'm staying until I can get a new appraiser. And he's like, you don't want to do that. He's going to be real mad. We're, we normally close up around the Christmas times. And she's like, why? The Hollyhock Inn is perfect to be open around Christmas. And they go back and forth for a while with her finally saying that she's going to stay the night and he can't stop her. And he's like, well, it's on you. And he leaves. She then is seen getting ready for bed and she goes to bed and she wakes up in the middle of the night to the door opening. And she grabs a nail file and her cell phone and she dials 911 on her cell phone but doesn't hit send yet. How big of a nail file are we talking? It's it's your standard nail file. It's not too big. So she's what? She's going to slowly grate the ghost to death? Yeah, apparently. And she starts like, walking through the house going, who's here? Who's broken in? Which is when Daniel the ghost casually steps out in the hallway and is like, hey, you're trespassing. She panics, flails, and knocks a vase over from on top of a bookshelf onto her head and passes out. There's a lot of head trauma in this movie. (laughs) There's a lot of head trauma in this movie. Possibly there's not actually a ghost. In defense of the nail file, this guy was super easy to kill when he was alive, so it might have (laughs) worked. It's true. It's true. (laughs) He then moves her over to a couch to sleep on because, you know, he's a gentleman from the 1920s. And she wakes up and she's like, what happened in the middle of the night? And behind her, someone is playing the piano, playing the 12 Days of Christmas, because that's a theme. She turns around and it's Daniel the ghost. And she's like, you, how did you break in? He's like, you can't break into a place that you own. And she's like, what are you talking about? And there's some arguing where she's like, you're not really a ghost. You're too solid. And she keeps touching his arm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here, let me prove that you're so solid. Oh, you're so solid. You're so solid. And he's like, well, let me prove to you that I'm not. And he just phases through the wall. <laughs> and they go back and forth. So he's shadow cat. <laughs> he's shadow cat. He's got a Kitty pride thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. She calls the sheriff. The sheriff shows up and Daniel just disappears because he's like, no, this isn't working. (laughs) And they go back and forth a few times where she's like, he's not really a ghost. And the old man shows up and is like, I can guarantee you he is. And they argue some more. And then finally he gets mad and grabs her arm. He goes, I'll prove it. And drags her outside where he walks to the end of like the sidewalk, the road to where it hits the car. And he goes, now watch this. And he walks forward and then just disappears. He's like, I can't leave this property. (laughs) Okay, so my next act, uh, I guess this is the 
Chance encounter. Chance encounter slash challenge. Mine's a little higgledy piggledy. So we now get to Green River, Connecticut, where Ben goes to the gazebo to see his dad. And he's like, we're so happy you said yes to be Santa. And he's like, I did not say yes to be Santa. I was guilted into this because I thought you needed me in the capacity of an adult son whose parent is like under the weather with some sort of broken thing. And he's like, no, we need you to be Santa. And he was like, Dad, my life was Santa 24-7 until I left for college. You put me under so much pressure. I want something different with my life. So he storms off, and then Grace and her friend Caroline go on the candlelight stroll, which is a thing that is real that all small towns do and should know about, definitely. It's just, I guess you hold candles and you stroll to the tree lighting ceremony. I wouldn't know. I'm a big city girl. (laughs) And Caroline is like, hey, so are you going to like chastely kiss Ben, which is the equivalent of sex for these movies? She's like, do you really think about anything else besides getting me in a relationship? And Caroline is like, I am your movie BFF. What do you think? (laughs) There, look, he's in a cafe and she literally says, you should go steal his car keys. So he's stuck here and then pushes her into the cafe because Caroline is assertive and I respect that about her. You know what you could do, Apu? Shut up. You could fake your own death. Oh, would you shut up? All you need is a car bomb. I can't believe you don't shut up. But I feel like it's not the strongest building blocks for a relationship if you steal someone's keys. (laughs) It's a little bit of a misery situation. (laughs) She hangs out with Ben a little. There is a cookie decoration kit that is foisted upon them by the owner of this cafe. Grace puts a ridiculous amount of detail into the cookies and mentions that, oh, she was like a painter or something. She liked doing art. Oil paintings, maybe, which I guess translates to cookies. But no, it's fine. It's a hobby. My parents are dead, so I took over the store. It's fine. It's totally fine. And Ben just kind of squints at her and then tells her about his terrible novel, which he describes as the outsiders with zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it that whenever writers write about writers, it's always the worst shit in the entire world? (laughs) I mean, is it on purpose? Is this supposed to be a shit writer because his destiny is to be Santa? Uh, yes and no. But it is definitely, even the movie is like, oh, this is a shitty novel you're working on. (laughs) So then Ben and Grace are dragged along to the tree lighting ceremony, which you have to have in a Hallmark Christmas movie with a small town. The mayor and Grace have this gritted teeth conversation about how, like, so do you have a Santa or not? Are we going to do a Santa? My son Clint is great at Santa. (laughs) Grace is like, oh, my God, your horrible son can be Santa if I can't find a professional Santa. (laughs) Which this town has. The tree lights go out after being turned on briefly. And Ben, who is the secret Christmas savant, notices a circuit issue or something and fixes it. And then the tree lights go back up because he is destined to Christmas. And then Ben and Grace argue again. And he's like, I'm leaving at dawn. I'm not staying for Christmas. And Grace is like, "Okay, so we should go back down to Boston together. Why? Uh, Because I drove down to Boston and left my car there. (laughs) It's fine. We have a little montage overnight when both characters use searchengine.com to look each other up. That's what I do before my dates. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that they're they're like I am a rideshare driver, even though sometimes Grace accidentally flubs a line and says Uber instead. Whoops. I love, I love, I love fake websites, but yeah, searchengine.com. He looks up searchengine.com is real. Yeah. And it's definitely more reliable than Google at this point. It looks like a three skin of Ask Jeeves. Uh, it, I'm, I'm on actual searchengine.com right now, and it, it is just basically like a Google search window that's been reskinned. <laughs> it even says enhanced by Google. Amazing. That's disappointing. Which probably means it's not very good. It probably means it's just literally Google. It's just Google search. They just put a Google search button in here. So he looks up Grace. He sees some of her art. Grace uses searchengine.com to look up Ben, finds his terrible Uber driver listicle blog. And also, there's a little bit of copy on the sidebar that the narrative doesn't call attention to, but it does say that Ben also has a podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, is he a white man over the age of 30? Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, he took the podcast specialization. Any group of white men in their 30s is the collective noun is a podcast. And I mean, this is like a dude writing a terrible book who has a blog about being an Uber driver. His podcast is going to be one of the worst things you've ever heard. I bet they got stories. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, Grace is picked up by Ben to go back down to Boston. And Caroline is like, will you at least put on some lip gloss for all the kissing that you should definitely do? <laughs> and that's the end of my act. I mean, I'm excited about potential kissing. Who's among us? And also weirdly about his podcast, because <laughs> I honestly think- We never hear about his podcast, and I'm so disappointed. A rideshare driver in Boston has got to have some buck wild stories. That is true. So many people have puked in that car. <laughs> I am a little bit terrified about how the universe itself is bending towards this guy being Santa. This gigantic blue Jeep that he drives, which, by the way, the blue Zord in Turbo, a Power Rangers movie, was an all-terrain vehicle, just saying. So that's like his signature. <laughs> it's like putting Hitchcock in every movie. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, yeah, they all have to have a blue Jeep. Yeah, they all have to have a blue Jeep so we can remember the child ranger. <laughs> Okay. Anyway. So, back in small town, I've looked it up. It's, uh, I think we're in Idaho. It says they're in Boise. They can't possibly be in Boise. It's too small for that. It's Pineville. There we go. They also like to say that movies sometimes take place in Seattle where there is a lot of snow, which, folks, there is not <laughs> a lot of snow in Seattle. All right. So, yeah, we're in Pineville, Idaho. And so, naturally, Jason, Marvel's agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., goes to visit Peter Gallagher. And because they're not related, they're just like, oh, yeah, you you were a kid. I used to know. I mean, I used to know you when you're a child. Fine, I'll be nice to you. Let's go fishing. So Peter Gallagher. Now you're just somebody that I used to know. Somebody. <laughs> so Peter Gallagher and Jason go fishing off screen and then they return and everything is apparently fine now. Because he's like, okay, I'll do the concert, but we can't play that song I wrote about my dead wife at Christmas. Okay, well, that seems like a very reasonable thing. You would think that, but it is their biggest hit, and everyone agrees to it, but that's going to be problematic. Hmm. Because TV stations aren't that kind. That now that things are heating up a little bit, they go on, they have rehearsals, and in the midst of rehearsals, Quinn and Jason start to realize that maybe they like each other more because they haven't seen <gasps> them since they were kids. 
Well, obviously, if you haven't seen someone since you were a child. And now they're both hot. And now they're both hot. This is a swan princess situation, folks. What else is there? So they decide that they're going to do up Peter Gallagher's giant famous house for Christmas. And so they go to like the Christmas store that definitely exists in this town and they get a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I have it on good authority that small towns economies can completely 100% support a store that exclusively sells Christmas shit. Yeah. And they go to the house, they do it up for Christmas. Peter Gallagher is like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but fine. Maybe this has warmed my heart just a little bit. <laughs> and then she tells Jason, she's like, hey, we need to go do the Christmas lighting. The Christmas tree lighting in the center of town. And he's like, yep, I'll be there. And she goes to light the Christmas tree and he's not there. Gasp. But uh. then he is. <gasps> oh! Gasp. In a dramatic reveal, he's like, hey, I just made it. <laughs> there was a thing. <laughs> oh, that I couldn't take that suspense. There was almost drama for like a second. <laughs> <laughs> and so now they're falling in love question mark and the concert's definitely going off without a hitch and everything's fine. Uh-oh. The complication approaches. <laughs> You're up, Kit. So we're calling this the chance encounter, I guess, which is author guy is at the book reading at the bookshop. Now, I want to clarify that earlier in the movie, it was said that he was a best-selling novelist. I'm seeing the size of this book, The Christmas Bow. That's not a novel. <laughs> It's just a that's just a big kid's picture book, but whatever. I don't know. Maybe they put it in like the store window and they printed it with the words a novel below the title. <laughs> so that's how you know it's a- <laughs> Which automatically makes it a novel, right? It automatically means that you can put it in the general fiction section and not one of the terrible genre sections. <laughs> Maybe it's a book about a novel. Oh. Anyway, this is a big kid's book about Christmas. So he's at this and earlier he had been talking to his agent about like the agent's like, okay, so your goal is to get with this MILF at the book reading. How are you going to know which one she is or even if she shows up? And he's like, well, my book is this kid's favorite book of all time. This kid is definitely going to show up with her mom in tow. And he's correct about that. But what actually happens is that the kid shows up without the mom. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And she's precocious, of course, right? So she immediately runs right up to him, demands to know, how do you become a writer? How do you be a good writer? Would you consider a partnership? Would you consider a partnership with an eight-year-old? Do you want to come to my mom's cafe so we can go over the book that I have? Do you want to date my mom? Do you want me to trap you in a marriage so we have to work together? <laughs> but also, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> Oh, God, she doesn't pull out that one. I think she's got plenty of ideas on her own. But he agrees to go across the street for, I get you not, a cup of hot cocoa. Gotta have it. You gotta have the hot... Look, if people have caffeine or, God forbid, alcohol, then they're just they're just asking for, for hell. They're going right to hell. <laughs> so he goes across the street to this... Uh, it's a Hemingway-themed cafe called The Bun Also Rises. Oh, God. That's amazing! That's incredible, actually. All the menu items are Hemingway puns. I'm sure Hemingway himself would have loathed it, which makes it better. Oh, yeah. Filled with hate. Exactly. He would have thought it was the most horrible thing on the planet. Oh, my God. He's like, I've seen this, and I'm going to kill myself even sooner than I originally did. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, and the worst part is, is that like Hemingway was her dead husband's thing. She was into Elliot. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Well, she's wrong because only one of those two writers was friends with young Indiana Jones. And it wasn't Elliot. <laughs> she's got a point. <laughs> Yeah, if I got to pick like a fairly shitty early 20th century writer to stand, I'm going to pick the one who got into literal boxing matches with people who didn't like his writing. <laughs> Sorry, folks. And I'm going to make it even worse by making shitty puns about his, his very serious stories. Oh, God. The pun also rises. God, I need that whole menu like immediately. It's so good. <laughs> So anyway, he is, at first does not realize that this kid is the Lily that he has been corresponding with the mom of because he only knows this woman is Lily's mom. But then, you know, he sees on her notebook that it has her name on it. And he's like, ah, yes, this is the child I should be following around to find her mom. It's <laughs> the weird vibes. They get talking more about writing and then the mom shows up. And then he's immediately like, hey, I'm going to put the moves on your mom real quick. And then, of course, we get the start of the challenge act and the end of this act because, whoopsie, Randy, who has been on one date with our main character, but because he's a lesbian, has decided that that now means they're a couple, shows up. And our author guy kind of misreads the situation and is like, oh, wait, this MILF that I've been wanting to bang is actually in a relationship. Shit. We've all been there. We've all been there. I love how blatantly he's using the child to get with the mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun vibes. All right, how's it going with that ghost? <laughs> Kate and Daniel bicker. Kate starts trying to clean up and tidy the hollyhock in, and Daniel's arguing with her, but eventually he's overcome, and he, he starts helping her, mostly by complaining at how she's doing things and taking over. Because it's his inn. He owned it on paper, even if he died. So they, they, they're arguing, they're like tidying and cleaning up things. A lady pops over and is like clearly flirting with old man whose name I can't remember. Santa. I think her name is Mary. You can just say something Christmassy, like just say a Christmas word and it'll be right. <laughs> it's true. He calls her Mrs. Mary something. She's like, actually, it's just my maiden name now. He died. And so you're like, oh, these are the side characters getting together. Got it. Also, that's not how it works legally. Your name still stays... <laughs> The same, unless you go to the courthouse and change it again. <laughs> yeah, so she had to really say, I no longer want this name. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of the name. <laughs> She's like, so I know you guys normally close over the holidays, but my bar had a situation recently and I just can't use it. So I was hoping I could use your bar for Christmas. And old man and Kate are both like, yeah, of course. And then Daniel pops in over Kate's shoulders like, absolutely not. And she's like, just ignore him. It's fine. And Mary's like, wow, you really look like the man who died here back in the 20s. Whose <laughs> picture I keep framed on my wall. <laughs> General knowledge everyone has. I just look at this incredibly clear photograph of someone from the 1920s a lot. <laughs> and Kate's like, he is a distant cousin of the Forsyth family known as DJ. That's great news, General. Congratulations. And Daniel's like, I am certainly not known as DJ. <laughs> okay. I'm an adult man known as DJ. He doesn't lay down any fat beats. <laughs> He's not even from Street Fighter. And Kate's like, one second, please. And she just pushes him by the chest to back into the other room. And she's like, do you want people to find out that you're a dead man? And he's like, well, no. And she's like, then okay, Deej. You're gonna be DJ. Okay. This is the first thing that she thought of, and she's sticking to it. Yep. 
And they go back to the room. He's like, yes, I am DJ. I suppose you can use my bar. She goes, great. I will bring my bartender over. He's the best. He goes, I doubt that. She goes, pardon me. And he goes, I am the best bartender. And so then an argument is agreed on where she's like, well, fine, then let's have a party tonight and you can show off your bartending skills. And he's like, fine. And so then it's like, they start warming up to each other because Kate's like, give me all your details about what groceries you want so I can get the right stuff to make you a, you know, drinks. It's also at this point where they are still fighting a little bit because uh, we have these scenes where Kate will like be in a room by herself and then suddenly a door will slam shut and she'll go charging into the other room and be like, why did you do that? And he's like, huh, I didn't do anything. And so there's a second ghost roaming the inn. <laughs> And they're starting to figure that out. Intrigue. Definitely not as handsome. Possibly not as solid. Definitely. But wicked cursed. Wicked cursed. Yeah, wicked cursed. Wicked cursed. Wicked cursed. (laughs) The wicked cursed ghost that's also an Uber driver in Boston. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so shipping up to Boston to find my wooden leg. I think we're now in the challenge phase, act four, so... We're in many phases. It's really more phases than acts, yeah? Yeah, I don't think any of us quite align 100% unless we really got down to brass tacks. Yeah, not really. It's true. I've kind of scattered through. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we are coming up on a big pinch point for Ben's universe-bending Santa transformation. (laughs) Because we're driving back to Boston, they have a little bit of like, oh, hey, I looked you up on (laughs) searchengine.com. And he's like, weirdo, don't look me up on the internet, but also I looked you up too. Sorry about your parents. But luckily, this conversation is quickly derailed by an unexpected snow front. Oh, no, we need to get off the road. There's a sudden storm. Where are we going to go? We're halfway between Boston and Green River. (laughs) But luckily, Grace's best friend from way back, who she's never mentioned before and will never mention again once they leave her house, lives nearby. Oh, that's nice. They have a ridiculously giant home. They have a perfect family with two young kids who are named Tucker and Alex. And Tucker, the precocious six-year-old boy, introduces himself by saying, I'm a mech. At which point Ben is like, Oh, a mech is like a robot that you climb inside and fight. And he's like, are you one robot or a bunch of robots combined into a megabot? And Tucker's like, I'm definitely a megabot. Grace is here, boyfriend. (laughs) Wow. I see you, director of Turbo Power Rangers movie. (laughs) Yeah, this dude literally made that one movie and cannot get over it. (laughs) It's not even the Power Rangers people like or remember. (laughs) No, it's Turbo. It's the one where, to borrow a phrase from Jake, Tommy inherits a race car farm. (laughs) Rest in peace, Tommy. R.I.P. Tommy. Warn you till I join you. So there's precocious children here. Oh, and you're just in time to help us trim the tree and hang up ornaments, (gasps) Ben. Here's a Santa ornament. Grace's friend, who has his name is like Amy or something, is like, well, our guest room is being renovated because our house this size definitely just has one guest room. But you can crash on our very comfortable L-shaped sectional couch overnight. And Ben immediately starts bonding with the children. He's good with the kids. He guesses their presence. The dad is reading Twas the Night Before Christmas. But oh no, the last page of the book is ripped out. How will we find out how it ends? (laughs) Who would do that? A six-year-old, apparently. Also, he guessed their presence. 
Did he literally ruin Christmas? He makes a joke out of it. He takes like a tiny little box and he's like, small child, you're getting a toaster. Congratulations. It's like, okay, okay, okay. The end of Twas the Night Before Christmas, a visit from St. Nicholas. It's just, it starts from he spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, which is like, there's like five lines after that. There's like 10 seconds of poem, but oh God, how does it end? Oh no, if only someone here was raised in and among Christmas cheer every day of his life until he was 18. And then Ben just starts reciting the poem. I mean, or he saw that Christmas special with the mice every year. He may have just seen the Christmas special with the mice every year. That night, there's only one L-shaped sectional sofa. They sleep with their heads both facing the corner of the sofa while fully clothed, which is one of the sluttiest things you can do in a Hallmark Christmas movie. Yeah, literally, if you are two people that hate each other, you're not putting your heads that close. No, you would face the other end of the sofa. Maybe your feet will, like, occasionally be within the same, like, two-foot space. But no, they put their heads close to each other. She's like, hey, are you awake? Yes. Good night. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's basically sex for a Hallmark movie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We come to Christmas Eve Eve morning where Grace decides that she's going to make eggnog, world-famous long-family recipe. And he's like, "Uh world famous. So if I look it up on searchengine.com, it'll pop up. So he starts to go it long family. Oh, oh, it auto completed to eggnog, huh? (laughs) Which is cute. That's definitely like, I mean, she's not a mommy, but it's that kind of like mommy blog kind of recipe where it's like a 10 paragraph story about this eggnog and then kind of the recipe at the end. It definitely looks like it. There's also a secret blend of spices that Ben is not allowed to see while she puts it together. Like the Colonel. Plus the Colonel's secret recipe. Chicken grease salt. They have this awkward conversation about being single. The Colonel, like the KFC crowd. I'm sorry, that took me a second and I love it. They're like, oh, so you broke away from your family tradition and followed your own dreams. That's pretty attractive. And he's like, so what dreams did you have, Grace? Grace admits that she always wanted to go to art school, but her parents died right after high school, (laughs) which is like probably a blessing, financially speaking, that you did not go to art school, Grace, honey. (laughs) Oh, yeah, girl, girl, I dropped out of that. I tried. This movie takes place in 2017. Going a little backwards doing the math. Yeah, the whole economy probably crashed while you were thinking about going to art school. She also spoon feeds him some of the eggnog, which again is the sluttiest thing I've ever seen in a Hallmark Christmas movie. (laughs) But not that slutty because my roommates and me taste spoons all the time. Oh, yeah, but this is a Hallmark Christmas movie where, like, physical contact always has to leave at least, you know, three feet for Jesus. Did their fingers brush against each other? A little bit. And then they almost lean in for a kiss, but then the whole family charges in in pajamas yelling, eggnog! Oh. I was closing my eyes and it was getting really sensual there for a second, and then their family came in. Yeah, exactly. The children also end up being sad because they can't get a letter to Santa because of the snow. And Christmas Eve is tomorrow night and they have not told Santa what they wanted because I guess this family has just like never had children before. And of course, oh, we can't go see Santa. If only Santa was here in person. If only there was a Santa suit in the back seat of someone's car. <laughs> Oh no, everything is ruined. And then Ben leaves the room and guess who walks in but Santa. 
who hears what all the children want and says, ho, 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 and then is escorted out by Grace. But the little kid's like, Santa, you have to meet Mr. Ben. He's so great. It's like, I think Mr. Ben's outside. It's fine. Goodbye. (laughs) Commercial break. The universe is going to force this man to be Santa. (laughs) (laughs) He has no choice in the matter. He doesn't want it. It feels mean. (laughs) It is his destiny. (laughs) I don't think destiny should determine whether you're a mall Santa or not. (laughs) So back in not Boise, somewhere in Idaho. Somewhere in Idaho, God. Somewhere in Idaho, which is nowhere close to New York, even though it apparently seems to be. (laughs) (laughs) There are complications. Uh Uh-oh. It turns out that when Peter Gallagher and Bruce Campbell split up their band, Peter Gallagher gave Bruce Campbell all of the publishing rights and royalties because he wanted to be done with it. (laughs) Which is phenomenally stupid on his part. But I guess he was in a bad place. (laughs) So that means that Peter Gallagher is going broke. And about to lose his house, which is the big famous house that was on their album cover. And so now there's the additional complication of this concert really needing to move forward because he really, really needs the money. He needs to keep his big fancy house. He needs to keep his big fancy house because it's famous and it's where Quinn grew up and it's where his wife lived and died. And where no Christmas has touched it for years. Because grief makes you not like Christmas. This is well known. As you do. While this is being uncovered, Quinn and Jason Agent from S.H.I.E.L.D. are increasingly getting together. They have adjoining hotel rooms in the small town inn where all the the tourists come through to see landmarks associated with the band. Like they're staying at that inn, like right next to each other. How do they even get rooms? I guess if you're famous enough. Wait, they have adjoining rooms? They don't have to share a hotel room? They don't have to share a hotel room. The rooms are literally right next to each other. Mm. And one night, Jason is invited into her room. Oh. Because things are really starting to heat up there. And this is where I must leave things because we're about to reach the misunderstanding. Uh Uh-oh. Jody, if this is not building up to old man Yowie, I'm going to be deeply disappointed. (laughs) Well, it's on Hallmark, so (laughs) how much old man Yowie do you think is going to occur? (laughs) I'm going to say the most we're going to get is maybe some light emotional intimacy. Maybe they hug. Oh, girl, you got no idea. All right, back over in Love Always Santa. Before the author realized that he wasn't going to get to f*** a MILF on this trip, he agreed to attend the open mic night that is happening this weekend at the cafe. I guess they're expecting him to do a reading or something. I don't know. But he decides that he's going to stay in town until Christmas Eve and honor this commitment to go to the open mic night, even though, you know, the girl he wanted to bang is, from what he can tell, with somebody else. So he decides he's going to be her friend. This is going to work out great for him, I'm sure. Is he friend-zoning himself? He's friend-zoning himself. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, never the bone zone. Yep, yep. He proceeds to write her a letter that she will only get after he has left town. That just basically just like, hey, I'm the author guy who was in town for a couple of days. Your situation wasn't what I thought it was. I was glad to make this connection anyway. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, hands that off. And then, like, the next few minutes of the movie are just, like, him dithering over, you know, wanting to bang her, but he can't. Her dithering over the fact that she's dating this guy she's not super enthusiastic about. And th maybe thinking about dating this author guy instead. And her sister basically saying, don't have dreams, be miserable, and settle for this magnificent lesbian that I found you who is building a potato gun in your front yard. What? <laughs> He's building a potato gun. Sorry, what? He's, yeah, he and, like, the sister's husband are building a potato potato cannon together for christmas for christmas there's going to be a christmas vegetable toss i guess in her yard in her yard okay i mean i guess you gotta have hobbies <laughs> this is his main thing and it's positioned as like this thing that makes him deeply undesirable i'm gonna be honest with you if someone decided that they're going to like build a potato gun in my front yard and like my days were filled with them going nuts over building the potato gun i would at least consider f***ing that person so this guy's basically a mythbuster yeah he's you're dating a mythbuster what's wrong with you woman <laughs> <laughs> maybe she just won't settle for anything less than pumpkins <laughs> Yeah, potatoes are too small scale for her. Got <laughs> pumpkin chunking or nothing. Yeah. We're going to need a bigger cannon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this whole thing ends when Lily persuades the author guy to attend the Christmas fair, which is positioned as like a really big deal. Oh, yeah, you gotta have the Christmas fair. Gotta have the Christmas fair. You gotta have the tree lighting. You gotta have the Christmas fair. You gotta have the hot cocoa. There's no tree lighting scene, weirdly enough. Is there any snowman building? No snowman building. Oh, I love the snowman building. It's always like a big styrofoam ball that they've dusted stuff on. <laughs> Perfectly spherical snowmen. Uh, Mackenzie, how's it going over in Ghostland? In Ghost Town, there's a moment where Kate is up in her room. The party that he's the bartender, that he's going to be bartending to prove that he can bartend. Um, it's going on, I think I said tonight earlier, it's like the next day. So she's up in her room cleaning and tidying, and then there's a dark, shadowy figure that appears and spooks her. So she goes charging downstairs, and is like, Daniel! Because that's the ghost name. And she <laughs> runs in, and he's like shirtless, ironing his shirt. Wait, wait, <laughs> he's a ghost! Why does he need to iron his shirt? The ghost needs to iron the clothes he died in? He just likes doing it sometimes. His shirt has wrinkles and that's his unfinished business. <laughs> Your shirt can get wrinkles in the afterlife? And he turns around shirtless and is like, and what are you doing barging into my room? Because she's like, how dare you barge into my room? Is he holding the iron? No, he's put it down. Okay. He then picks up his shirt and starts slowly putting it on while she just kind of stares at his shirtless bod. <laughs> I'm guessing this is about as slutty as these movies get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Someone took yeah. their shirt off. That is unheard of. <laughs> They bicker back and forth. And then finally, he sits down and tells her about his dark and sordid past, which is that he and his family- I love hearing about a dark and sordid past. <laughs> they ran the Hollyhock Inn, he and his brother. Uh, they owned it together, but he was the main owner. They held a wonderful Christmas party every year. And one year- They simply had a wonderful Christmas time. Simply, yes. <laughs> and they were hosting it. 
And the new mayor in town showed up with his daughter, Lily. And it was love at first sight for Lily and Daniel. And they were all eyes on each other. However, they had a bit of a fight because he found out this was during Prohibition that you could make a bunch of money by going on a trip to Canada and taking their booze and bringing it back. Like $600 per trip or something like that. He just went on a big rum running road trip? Basically. And he did this a few times and got a lot of money from it. And Lily didn't like it because it was dangerous. And you could die or get caught with by the police doing it. And so he said, one more time, Lily. And she was like, okay, one more time. And that was what he was doing. And she was like, you have to be back in time for the Christmas party. Oh, there's our deadline. There it is. Yeah. He left and he came back. Then as he was standing outside that he saw his brother embrace Lily. And he assumed that his brother and Lily had been cheating together on him. And that's when he got bonked in the head and died. By whom? Do we know by whom he's been bonked yet? Not yet. That's part of the mystery. A case like that is the saddest thing I've ever heard. And she's like, I'm going to solve this mystery because clearly it's not knowing who killed you that's keeping you around. I thought it was his wrinkly shirt. (laughs) (laughs) So they have the challenge where he's proving he's better than this other lady's bartender, Mary's bartender. And she keeps admiring how he knows all these old drinks that everyone else has forgotten how to make. Yeah, because most of them were just like, put a whole bunch of booze into it. (laughs) This is equal parts. Scotch, absinthe, rum, gin, vermouth, triple sec, and two packs of Splenda. Call it a one of everything. And he's making them and handing them off. She's like, this is the best one I've ever had. They're going back and forth over this. And she's like, I swear you really do just look like the murder man who died here. (laughs) I think his article is over on the wall over there. And they go and look at it. And of course, it's a perfect picture of Daniel. (laughs) From 1920. (laughs) Yeah. With high-resolution digital <laughs> photographs from the 1920s. Yeah. It's his glossy headshot for the talkies. <laughs> of course. They talk about this, and of course, Kate starts asking what question, what the answers, uh, what answers Mary knows about it. And she's like, so he died? Did they ever find out who murdered him? And she, Mary's like, no, sadly. And she goes, well, what happened? And she's like, well... He had a fiance named Lily, and I guess a couple of weeks later she married his brother, and they had a child much too early to say that they got pregnant with it after wedlock, and they named the child Daniel Forsyth after him, and then the child died because it was sickly. Some say that the d- child was actually Daniel's, and that's why his brother married her to make sure that everything was fine, and she died a few days after the child. And Daniel, of course, gets really mad at this because we're leading to the misunderstanding. He's like, why did you keep asking her these questions? I don't want to know these things and she's like but we need to find out your past so that you can move on and he storms off angrily and she storms off angrily because she's upset that he's mad at her for prying i mean that is pretty (laughs) awful to discover that like the woman you loved was unbeknownst to you pregnant with your child and then both she and the baby died that's pretty that's a good reason (laughs) to be upset actually yeah yeah but also how has he literally never heard this before I mean, if it was just a couple of months later, like, I feel like she would have been showing. And also, like, when did he appear as a ghost? Because if this was going down in that house still, wouldn't he have ghost seen it all? 
Oh, and they also do at this point wonder if maybe the second ghost is Lily. Oh, yeah. Oh, have we established his, like, ghost reappearance rules yet, Mac? Oh, his ghost reappearance rules is he only appears the 12 days before Christmas. And on midnight on Christmas Eve, so, like, going into Christmas Day, he just stops appearing and doesn't appear again until the next year. I can't believe I'd forgotten. Of course he never heard about it. Of course. (laughs) Is he just asleep that whole time? Or, like... Is he hanging out somewhere else? He says he can't sense anything during that time. So he's aware of time passing or does he just like blink and it's the- He's like blink and it's the next year, basically. I'm not sure if that's more or less hellish than the idea that he's just suspended in the void. (laughs) That also means that it's always winter, never Christmas for this dude. (laughs) So I've done math. Uh Uh-huh. And if he only exists for 12 days over the course of 80 years, he's lived 960 days as a ghost, which is... Two and three quarter years? Yeah, something like that. Actually, he's going up (laughs) on 100, like, depending on when this movie came out. It was 2015. Oh, he's almost got 100 ghost years. I'm assuming he stops being a ghost at the end of this because it's a Christmas movie. (laughs) We'll find out. We'll find out. But yeah, we're leading to the misunderstanding and the kind of weird split up part. Well, I've still got a little bit to go before my misunderstanding, because back in Finding Santa, we have these two characters who decide that the roads are clear. They're going to be able to go down to Boston to get Grace's car and to drop off Ben, who is not going to be Santa. But (laughs) oh no, only the roads going south towards Green River are open and Grace has to get back for the parade. They can't get to Boston. The only road leads to Green River. (laughs) Terrifying. So they go back to town and Ben is like, boy, being Santa for those kids and making them happy was really nice. And I was very good at it. And he wanders around town. He likes it. And he's like, you know, I always thought that if I was going to get away from my legacy, I'd have to get as far away as I could to Boston. (laughs) But after being at Amy's house, I kind of forgot how Christmas felt. (laughs) And Grace is like, I forgot how Christmas felt, too, because somewhere along the way, celebrating Christmas every day became a job. I forgot how Christmas felt in Boston, a majority Catholic city. (laughs) Where it is cold basically all the time. (laughs) And they have this little argument where Ben's like, so why don't you just like stop working at this Christmas store that your parents kind of foisted upon you in their death? And she's like, no, the entire town's economy relies on this year round Christmas shop and this one parade. I'm happy knowing what I do makes other people happy, too. It's okay." And Ben is like, what about you, Grace? Don't you deserve to be happy, too? They get out of the car back in Green River, at which point Leslie, the network executive, charges at Grace like I was five minutes away from telling the network that we didn't have a Santa. And that would have been catastrophic. (laughs) If Clint was Santa, that would be a nightmare for both you and the town. (laughs) Grace has to settle some sort of silly Christmas hat dispute between some carolers who show up for this sequence and never again. And Grace is like, Well, I can't force someone to wear a costume if they don't want to while giving Ben this deeply significant look. And as they walk away, Ben's like, oh, that's for me. And Grace is like, do you not know what subtext is? And he says, no, I don't do subtext. Ben, I know why your book isn't going so hot. It's for cowards, Annie. (laughs) I know other writers who use subtext. They're all cowards. 
And Ben's like, oh, no, I don't keep anything inside. I tell it like it is. And she's like, so what are you thinking right now? As she gets very close to him and he looks into her eyes and then deliberately pivots away while singing Jingle Bells. (laughs) (laughs) We come across a float for the Main Street Parade where I guess all of the local shops decorate trees for this float. And oh, no, there's no tree for the Santa school. If only there was someone who was really good at trimming Christmas trees and knew someone who owned a Christmas store. Oh, (laughs) how will this get solved? And also they hold hands and then very quickly stop holding hands. It's very slutty. But we also discovered that the Christmas store is closed right now because Clint is getting a Santa lesson from Tom, the owner of the Santa school, and it's bad. Clint is like, I'm bringing my personal flair to the role. He's like a comically terrible Santa. He can't do the ho, ho, ho right. He's like, ho, ho, ho. Oh, no. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Fucking Clint. It's like this is a man who has never seen a Santa in his life and refuses to start now. Like, this dude has never seen a can of Coca-Cola in December. (laughs) (laughs) Death from Discworld had it down pat more than this. Exactly. And Ben sees this. He is aghast. He storms out to go trim the tiny tree. And he's like, I have to go and stop and see my father because I'm definitely leaving. But okay, you can talk me into going to your ugly sweater party tonight. That is the end of this very brief act. And because I'm a little bit behind, folks, I'm just going to go ahead and dive back into my next act so I actually get to the misunderstanding so we'll all be more caught up. So we go to Caroline the Best Friend's ugly sweater Christmas party. And to their credit, these are actually bad looking tacky sweaters with a bunch of crap on them as opposed to just like a very busy sweater you bought at the Walmart. They have a little bit of fun at the party. They do a photo booth thing. There's dancing. Then there's a slow song. And oh no, their sweater flare got stuck together. They almost kiss, but then Clint shows up and Grace is like, shouldn't you be at home practicing for the parade? And he's like, practicing what? Sitting down? And the movie is like, (laughs) he's terrible, but also he's right. (laughs) He's not incorrect. That's an easy job. That's an easy job. You're sitting down at a parade. Like, I've seen the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and it always ends with Santa, and he's just sitting there. He's just stuck in a chimney, like Pooh in the door to Rabbit's house. Like, you just have to sit and wave and look vaguely jolly. Yeah. And then Ben is like, dude, you're representing the real Santa Claus. This isn't a joke. The real Santa Claus. The real Santa Claus. Cannot stress enough, this is not a movie where Santa is empirically proven to be real, but we are all just assuming that there is a real Santa Claus in this one. Well, the kids might be watching. There is a real Santa Claus. And Ben is aghast. He's like, I can't let him on the sleigh. For the first time, I can finally see what my dad is talking about. Walking around today, it finally sank in what this parade means to the town and to my dad and to you. I shall be the Santa. And now he embraces his horrible destiny and then leaves to go get some cocktails. They don't drink. (laughs) And like, there's another guy, I think a city council dude is like, Ben is going to be Santa. This parade is going to be perfect. Good job changing Ben's mind. And Ben walks in on Grace while she's saying, this parade is my legacy. I would do anything to protect it. (laughs) And Ben is like, anything to protect your legacy? Like making me think there was something real between us? 
<laughs> that is a wild conclusion to jump to, sir. Yeah, it is the Hallmark equivalent of saying, like, so you seduced me into being Santa Claus. <laughs> he leaves in a huff because he's like, you've been pretending your whole life. Why would you stop now, Grace? You're so afraid of facing the reality that you're not happy with your own life choices, that you spend every waking moment trying to force me to change mine. Admit it, you're bitter about running a Christmas shop. <laughs> She's like, forget that I ever asked you to be Santa. Fine, fine. <laughs> That's my misunderstanding. But there is a really great juicy scene coming up here that this whole movie hinges on. But I feel like it's part of a different sort of act sequence. So I'm going to move on there. I'll put a pin in that one. Okay. Perfectly reasonable. Meanwhile, and not Boise. <laughs> Peter Gallinger, Bruce Campbell, their band is vaguely back together. I say band, it's just them two. They don't have a drummer. Do they even have like a guy on drums or a drum machine? Nope, they're just two guys with guitars. Bless. <laughs> I think they're both like also regular guitars, so no one's playing bass. So it's just two acoustic guitars. Yes. Beautiful. Their band is two of those guys that go to parties with acoustic guitars. Oh, no. <laughs> so they're rehearsing more or less successfully, and their children are vaguely falling in love. But then the network has a demand. The network? Oh, no. You know how the network be. <laughs> oh, do I ever. The network is demanding that they play their hit song about Peter Gallagher's dead wife at Christmas, or they're going to pull the show. I wish that was oh, the title no. of the song. <laughs> Peter, Peter Gallagher's, Gallagher's dead, dead wife at Christmas. So Peter Gallagher's like, well, yeah, I'm not fucking doing that. So bye. And he fucks off. At this point, Quinn is like, I'll go talk sense into my dad. You know, we'll get this together somehow. But then Jason Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Bruce Campbell and the director are like, okay, but what if we just kind of record a solo version with only Bruce Campbell and then we splice that into the special later? And Quinn's like, you absolutely cannot fucking do that. My dad will murder you to death. Amazing. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, fine. We definitely won't do that. And then she leaves the room. And then Bruce Campbell and his son are like, we're definitely doing that though, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they do. Peter Gallagher and Quinn find out about it. And boy, that doesn't go well. <laughs> Love is dead. The concert is dead. Everything is dead. <laughs> it's a long, dark night of the soul for Christmas. At this point, the concert will not happen. Peter Gallagher will lose his house. The cottage industry this town has that revolves around this band will collapse. Nobody wins. I love it when there's like always just a cottage industry about one tiny thing, like a duke lives here or a band guy lives here or this bakery makes a treat. The small town is literally Peter Gallagher lives here and that's his famous house. <laughs> it's like the small group of serfs that build up around the knight's castle. <laughs> You're not wrong because this is like a manor, which is absurd Amazing. because this is theoretically a house he had before he was famous, but it's still <laughs> like a mansion with like gates and acres of land. Okay, so industry plant is what you're saying. I wouldn't put it past, you know, those producer types. This is like the 80s rock version of Taylor Swift. <laughs> it is. Yeah, these guys are basically... I've been saying they're Simon and Garfunkel. They're holonotes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So someone got a restraining order. 
Mm, that makes me sad, actually. <laughs> I've seen Hollow Notes in concert, so that makes me sad. <laughs> but yeah, that is my colossal misunderstanding for the moment. So we get to the Christmas fair, which we actually see like very little of, I'm guessing, because they were trying to hide the fact that this was blatantly Vancouver. <laughs> There's some very narrow shots here of the Christmas fair. We see like three quarters of a Ferris wheel. We see kind of some edges of like Christmas shacks with vendors in them and stuff. But for the most part, it's very tight shots on people in like little snow covered streets. I would bet it was probably set up for like two or three different movies that they had <laughs> stuff set aside for that they had to just rotate out. <laughs> oh, probably. Anyway, our author guy runs into Lily, who asks, hey, since we're partners, which I don't know that he ever agreed to that, but sure. Uh, since we're partners, I wrote a book. Can you take a look at this book? Also, the illustrations were done by this boy in my class who I totally don't like. And he agrees that, yeah, he's going to look at the book. And she's like, well, I don't have it with me right now, but I can bring it to you. So then our main character comes along, Lily's mom. Lily goes to relieve her mom at the, like, Santa's elf thing. They're both in elf costumes. And then they go to the vegetable toss because Lily's mom has to go and be a cheerleader, I guess. Ah, see? She's holding out for pumpkins. Yeah, she is holding out for pumpkins. Uh, so she's going to go cheerlead Randy while he's showing off the potato gun. We don't actually get to see the potato gun in action. All we get to see is that he won. Aww. And Author Guy's agent is there and is, like, genuinely amazed by this potato gun. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, dudes, man. In the course of like the post potato gun win celebration, author guy and our main character get left alone and they decide that they're going to go explore the Christmas fair together. And that mostly involves going on the Ferris wheel. I wonder what's going to happen on the Ferris wheel. Although this sequence does contain my favorite character in the entire movie, which is this guy who is manning the Ferris wheel, who is telling you the rules and then lets you on the Ferris wheel. He's just so morose. He is just this very deadpan morose <laughs> character. It, I'm going to call him Gunther because I'm naming him after the hot dog vendor that comes by my office sometime and is the saddest man in the entire world. So Gunther lets them onto the Ferris wheel. They go up. It turns out that he is both not acclimated to the cold bullshit. He lives in Chicago and afraid of heights, but he decided to go on the Ferris wheel because she wanted to. And then she drops her elf hat and it lands on Gunther's head. <laughs> He's just like, you know, nobody ever listens to the rules. Completely deadpan. Gunther sounds like he really missed his calling in letting people onto the doom buggies in the haunted mansion. Right? That does seem like <laughs> that is his natural environment. Yes. Also, I have a quick question. About the hot dogs? Yes. <laughs> you say the hot dog man is very sad, but are the yes. hot dogs still very good? The hot dogs are okay. They're hot dogs made in Britain, but they are made by a guy oh. from Germany, okay. or at least of German descent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I trust an English hot dog. Carry on. Yeah. The food truck is called Gunther's Memories of the Black Forest. At no point does it say that the memories were good ones. <laughs> what yeah. the Sorry, sorry, what the, the hot dog cart Gunther's memories of the Black Forest? They also serve bratwurst. <laughs> I truly love everything about this truck, actually. Yeah, and it's, it's <laughs> like, I one time I went up and I asked for a Frankfurter and he said, are you sure? <laughs> and just looked at me completely flat and I was like, yes. That's that McDonald's nightmare. I saw the sign. Can I have it? Do you think you're ready? <laughs> he just, I said, yes, I want the Frankfurter. And he sighed and turned towards the grill. <laughs> 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 
the saddest man who ever has ever sold me a hot dog. Who died in the Black Forest by Frankfurter <laughs> that he's so upset? <laughs> I don't know what's up with this guy. And why would you put it on the menu? <laughs> That was my question. I was like, if you don't want to make it for me, don't put it in the fucking menu. Give me my hot dog. <laughs> Gotta say, that is some deeply German cinema shit there. <laughs> anyway, moving on from Gunther, the saddest sausage vendor in the world. <laughs> oh, Our author guy and our main character kind of do a glancing kiss on the Ferris wheel. Like, they, they lips make contact, but it's over very quickly. And she just kind of turns away, and then the rest of the Ferris wheel ride is awkward. And then they get off. And then Gunther takes a look at them and points the hat on his head and says, I'm keeping this. <laughs> He's very good. After the kiss, author guy goes to his agent's hotel room, and they are drinking and lamenting. And the author's like, oh, I'm not sure I can do this, etc., 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 and the agent is like, hey, so it turns out that I'm going to be buying Randy's book. I'm going to get Randy to write a book about potato guns because this is the coolest shit I've ever seen in my life. And I was talking to him and it turns out that Randy and your MILF friend have been on exactly one date. So maybe you should get over yourself and tell her you like her. <laughs> <laughs> so he decides that he's going to do this at the upcoming open mic night. So he gets the open mic night. Lily has her book. He looks through her book. Which is about, you know, the fact that her dad is dead and she's sad. But hey, there's new hope because there's, you know, love in her mom's life, supposedly. There's a new book, dad. There's a new book, dad. Author guy, of course, completely misreads the situation. But he says, okay, I've got feedback for you. But I feel rude talking during the open mic night. So I'm gonna write it down. So he writes her a note that basically says, Lily, I have one note. It's perfect. Love always. Guy's name, I forget. <laughs> and slots that into her little book there and hands it back to her. He then goes up to the open mic, decides he's going to confess about being the Santa pen pal to this MILF. Oh. Unfortunately, he gets interrupted because Randy has come in. Now, earlier, the MILF had tried to break up with Randy and it didn't quite stick because he wasn't smart enough to understand that he was being broken up with. That man is just a one-track potato gun head. Yes, he's actually kind of sweet, <laughs> which is evidenced by the fact that he goes up on stage, brings her up with him, gets down on one knee, and presents tickets to Cuba, where she was always wanted to go because it was one of Ernest Hemingway's favorite places to go. Randy did that? Randy did that. Randy? Can you go to Cuba? This movie was made in 2016. Could you have gone to Cuba from the United States? I don't point? think you can. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think the embargo was lifted. I mean, you could try to go to Cuba. I don't know that you'd be returning from Cuba. If this were like a genuinely Canadian movie as opposed to just being filmed in Vancouver, I would understand it. But these are supposedly people living in Kansas. So yeah. I don't know what's going on there. Travel to Cuba for tourist activities remains prohibited by statute. <laughs> yeah. You, oh, boy. I don't know where he thought those tickets were going to go. <laughs> Apparently not Cuba. <laughs> Cuba, Florida. <laughs> oh, yep. Cuba, Florida. I will point out that our MILF character is somehow not completely enchanted by this because she says, quote, he doesn't understand why she wants to go to Cuba and like, bitch, does it matter? Did she explain? He bought you some very expensive plane tickets. <laughs> Author guy witnesses all of this. Uh, I found it. It's Cuba, Louisiana. There it is. <laughs> So the plane is going to Cuba, Louisiana. Don't worry about it. Anyway, the author decides he's going to head to the airport now because obviously this whole thing is a non-starter. So he leaves and that's our big... Oh, do they go to the tiny little airport with like two check-ins? They don't make it to the airport. The car crashes, but that's the next act. Oh, boy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> All right. How's, how's it going in Ghost World? Yeah. How is Steve Buscemi doing? <laughs> they go back and forth. Kate and Deej start arguing about her digging. And she's like, if I don't dig, then you're never going to figure out what's keeping you here. And he's like, but it hurts to hear. Uh, and they bicker back and forth about this. Uh, and right then, she also gets a phone call from her boss, who's like, hey, how come you haven't closed the deal yet and sold the inn? And she's like, look, it's complicated. He's like, but I'm in Aruba worrying about this. Wasn't she just supposed to do an appraisal? No, she's supposed to do an appraisal and then sell it before the new year. Oh, and sell it. Okay. Wait, she does the appraisal herself? No, so she hired someone, but he left because ghosts. Right, 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 my bad. And so they bicker about this. Her boss is like, I just need to talk to you. He's like, well, I'm coming back from Aruba tomorrow so we can talk tomorrow. And she's like, but tomorrow is Christmas Eve. <laughs> and Daniel's like, and you know I stop existing for a while at the end of Christmas Eve. And she's like, well, I need to go talk to my boss. And they bicker some more. And then she leaves to go back to local big city to talk to boss <laughs> and daniel's like she's never coming back to old man who's like i think she will and he's like well we're now having a christmas party this evening on christmas eve so maybe she will come back for the christmas party that's the misunderstanding okay <laughs> it's reconciliation time everybody it's time for hugs speaking of reconciliation and hugs Ben goes back to his dad's house to pack up some things and head back down to Boston. He starts to write a note when his dad comes in while wearing pajamas. And Ben's like, I'm sorry, dad. And I'm going to do this joke again. Screw you. I'm shipping up to Boston to find my wooden leg. And dad's like, but I thought you had finally come around. And Ben and his dad argue. And Ben's like, dad, why can't you ever just accept the fact that I'm being who I want to be? And who is that, Ben? A writer or... How is he going to end that sentence? Gay? <laughs> yeah, this is a commitment of weird metaphor. A writer or Santa. And he's like, it doesn't matter, Dad, as long as I'm making the decision for myself. I wish for once, and I'm directly quoting here, that you could be proud of me, even when I'm not following in your footsteps. But I don't want your life. And the dad has this moment of heartbreak, and he's like, I am proud of you, son. You're kind, you're smart, you're strong. In the end, I guess that's all I needed to pass on. When I started our Santa school... I wrote our motto, find the jolly. But what I meant by that was, find your own way to make the world a better place. And I should have followed my own rules. And then he starts weeping and embraces his son while saying, <laughs> I love you, son, Santa or not. <laughs> I love you, Paul. I love you, Cletus. <laughs> Two notes. One, this is a metaphor for gay. Two, find the jolly should have been in Latin. <laughs> this is a movie that intends for you to buy into the line, I love you, son, Santa or not. <laughs> I love you, my gay, not Santa, son. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go to our next commercial break where we come back and Grace, and I'm using this in heavy quotes, paint something <laughs> because what it is it's like this gigantic canvas of like i don't know probably like two to three feet tall and it is a photo that someone applied an oil painting filter to i took a video of this woman 
painting this photograph that she apparently knocks out in like an hour. It's incredibly detailed. It's photorealistic. It is of Ben being Santa with the two kids at that house. And like also, that's a creepy thing to paint for a guy that just stormed off. Yeah. And again, photorealistic. Caroline barges in and Grace throws a blanket over the canvas, which I guess is just dry now. (laughs) No, that blanket's ruined. (laughs) And Caroline's like, so tell me about the smooching you're doing with Ben. And Grace is like, but he's gone back to Boston. But you were all over each other. And Grace explains the argument when she starts talking about how Ben said she's bitter and in denial about wanting something else. Caroline starts mugging at the camera and basically all but tugging at her shirt collar going like, okay, he may have been right. You have always been kind of bitter about it. You wanted to, ever since we were kids, you wanted to get out of Green River and paint the world and see Christmas all over the world. And now you're stuck here living your parents' dream and not yours. What about you, Grace? (laughs) Which is, again, I'm directly quoting this movie is not subtle. It does not believe in subtext. That is for cowards. And Grace has this incredible epiphany where she says, Caroline, do you think it's possible to love Christmas but not want to live and breathe it every single day? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Ask Benito Serino. (laughs) And Caroline is like, okay, man, that sounds like a personal problem. Wouldn't let that happen to me, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's built different. I'm just built different. R.I.P. to you. (laughs) And now we come to the next day when it is finally Christmas Eve. It is the day of the parade. We're going to delay the parade to primetime six o'clock news, where we're going to just show this parade on the news in its entirety, I suppose. And Leslie, the network executive, wants to interview Santa before the parade. And there's going to be so many people watching. And meanwhile, Clint, who is Santa because Ben is stormed off, is like with his beard off. And he's like, can we get this started so I can go home and watch the game? <laughs> and then Tom stomps up and he's like, the first rule is to always stay in character when you're in the suit. And then he turns to Grace and he's like, I learned a lesson about letting my son be himself and not force him to follow in my footsteps. <laughs> and Grace is like, oh, I wish I'd been told that. And Ben's parents both look her directly in the eye and it's like, you don't have to live Christmas every single day to keep your mom and dad in your heart. Your parents would want you to live your own life, not theirs. <laughs> we cut to Ben, who is dropped by Grace's house to drop off the ugly Christmas sweater, sadly, but then sees the photograph painting through the window and has a big think about it. And then the parade commences, which seems to be one Jeep with the mayor in it and the prom queen, a marching band full of 15 teens, and then like two floats. And then someone runs up to Grace with like, Grace, we have a problem. Oh, no. That's my act break. I feel like they would have noticed the problem before it started, but okay. So you might remember Bruce Campbell's Chekhov's forgetfulness. I do. Unlike him. Unlike him. (laughs) Wow. Too soon. (laughs) After the big dust up in which Bruce Campbell records the Sad Christmas song by himself, just inserted into the Christmas special, Right, Peter Gallagher's Dead Wife Christmas Song. Yes, the full title of it. (laughs) He goes back to his trailer where he is confronted by Peter Gallagher, who's like, hey, man, 
what the fuck? You said you were going to record this song, and it's about my dead wife at Christmas. <laughs> That's It's in the title. I know I've been fighting, but this feels like, you know, out of nowhere, even for you. And Bruce Campbell's like, I'm sorry, I have dementia. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Which seems to solve all of their problems. Okay, okay, okay. Really? Dementia. Really? Well, shit, I look like a huge asshole now. Amazing. It's not your <laughs> fault. <laughs> so, smash cut to Bruce Campbell and Peter Gallagher go back to Peter Gallagher's big house. And they have the closest thing to the old man Yao you're going to get, in which they have a very oh. sweet, like, heart to heart about their past. And, like, how they should have been talking more and that blah 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 You know, they've always been brothers. They grew up together. And Peter Gallagher's like, hey, man, you know, if we need to do this concert for your medical bills or whatever, I'll do it. I'll even sing that song that I don't want to sing. Does anyone ever in these movies ever form a meaningful relationship, like, with someone that they haven't known since they were, like, three years old? No, you can't meet new people. It's not allowed. Yeah. No, you can't meet new people. Well, I mean, my ghost is meeting new people. That's it's true. true. He has problems with old people that are dead, but that's a different <laughs> thing. <laughs> Peter Gallagher and Bruce Campbell, they reconcile because, I don't know, Peter Gallagher feels bad about Bruce Campbell probably dying. And then the children, who are theoretically the love interest of this movie, but you really only care about the old dads. Quinn is like, oh my god, I can't believe your dad has dementia and is probably dying. And so they make up because tragedy brings everyone together. Naturally. Now the stage is set for this concert to commence under a pall of weird sadness. <laughs> yeah, that's not really holly or jolly. Although it doesn't look like this is a Hallmark movies and mystery movie for you. So those can get a little weird. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Some crossover. Mm -hmm. Okay, Kit, how's your letter writing melt? <laughs> All right, so there's something I forgot to mention in the last act, which is that during the open mic night, our milf writes her Santa pen pal a note and gives it to the mailman who may or may not actually be Santa. He's got a white beard oh. and he seems to instinctively know which jacket belongs to our author guy. Oh, there we go. One of these had to have a covert Santa. Yes, this may be Santa, but... Anyway, author guy's headed to the airport, but his car crashes because either the agent deliberately crashed it or he just sucks that much on driving on ice. Sorry, the agent may have deliberately crashed it? He didn't want author guy to leave. <laughs> anyway, so they find somewhere to take shelter, which is like this great big spooky barn place. And then they manage to turn the lights on. And, oh, God, it's Santa's workshop. What? It's... <laughs> It's like a place where they've got a bunch of Christmas trees stored, except they're all lit up. And there's a bunch of old farmer's almanacs like piled up in the corner. I don't know who lives here, but they decide that they're going to stay here for the night rather than freeze in the car. Meanwhile, uh, Randy has been rejected in his attempt to take our MILF character to the place she's always wanted to go. So he comes by the house with a box full of stuff and said, hey, I just wanted to bring you your stuff. And she's like, I didn't keep anything at your house. And he's like, well, here's this is actually just a box of stuff. I don't want anymore. <laughs> here, have it. Marry this man. As these two are talking and the sister is off in the corner listening, 
Randy starts talking about how he was talking to the sister's husband about how bad he felt that he was rejected. And it turns out that the sister's husband said something really, really sweet about how being married to her is like waking up to a new truck every morning. It's a new <laughs> truck. Yeah. You know that feeling <laughs> after you bought a new truck and you look out the window and you're like, oh, man, I got a new truck. That's that's what he compares it to. My beautiful wife is like a new truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this works on the sister. She is immediately touched by this and realizes, hey, maybe my marriage isn't a hellhole after all, which heterosexual propaganda, but okay. Oh, my God. No, I just I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My wife, who is like a new truck that I get to wake up to every my wife, the truck, <laughs> my wife, whom I love like a new truck. <laughs> that is so romantic. <laughs> okay, I actually love that. So on the bingo card, if you had someone drives a truck, does this count? <laughs> <laughs> that depends on how often they're intimate. Oh, no, I love this. I love this. God, like, I love that it's just like a dude who loves potato cannons and a guy who compares his wife to a new truck. <laughs> yeah, honestly, these are the ideal men. I don't understand what the problem is here. Anyway, these are just domesticated bros. Yeah, dudes rock, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Lily comes in because she opened up her book and saw that the author guy had left a note and realized that it was on the same paper and in the same handwriting as the letters she was getting from quote unquote Santa. Stationary saves the day. Yes, stationary <laughs> saves the day. Lily barges into the room and says, author guy is Santa. Meanwhile, our main character's letter was shoved into the pocket of author guy's jacket and his agent finds it as he's on the phone with the airport trying to figure out A, whether his flight has been canceled. It has and B, when the next flight is. He digs this letter out, at first thinking it's the plane tickets, realizes it's a letter, reads it, then hands it off to author guy, who also reads it, which is basically her confessing she's in love with him. And then she, meanwhile, is going over all these letters and realizing that the author guy, he is in love with her. And so we have like a remote reconciliation between these two characters. Our author guy decides that he has to go and talk to her. So they start looking for transportation in the barn, hoping to find like a truck, a snowmobile, something. Instead, we hear horse noises from inside there. <laughs> and that's our act break. Great. Ghost time. Ghost time. So Kate gets into a fight with her boss where she's like, I don't think we should just sell it by Christmas. It needs to go to somebody who will love it. And her boss is like, Kate, what the f*** has happened to you? They go back and forth. Meanwhile, ghost plus old man plus Mary tidy up the inn to prepare for a Christmas Eve party. Eventually, Kate does show back up. She's like, I'm back. And I've got my boss to agree that we'll only sell the inn to somebody who loves it. Her and ghost look at each other, but then carefully avoid each other. <laughs> and the party ensues where everybody's dancing and ghost starts experiencing some hallucinations where he sees the Christmas party from the past, the one that he just witnessed from afar before being bonked in the head. <laughs> and he sees his brother approach Lily and be like, he's not coming back. He doesn't care about you. He cares more about the money and the liquor. And Lily's like, 12 days of Christmas aren't over yet. The 12 days of Christmas haven't begun, goddammit! <laughs> it's Christmas Day to Epiphany! Oh, I just knew that Annie would start yelling right then. <laughs> Son of a bitch! Oh, no, it's an, it's infuriating, and I agree. Thank you! <laughs> and then she goes outside. She's like, he's coming. I know he's coming. And he watches his brother step out. And what he assumed was an affair hug was actually her starting to cry. And his brother being like, 
maybe he will be here soon. Maybe he will be. And it's at this point that Kate touches his arm and is like, what are you saying? And he's like, I'm seeing the party. And the only person who isn't here is Harry. And you have no idea who Harry is. Nobody knows who <laughs> Harry is. Met Harry? And she's like, Harry? And he's like, that's my cousin. So they swirl around and they watch Harry moving up the stairs and he's holding a bloody rock in his hand. He didn't ditch the evidence? Apparently <laughs> <laughs> not. So he dashes upstairs after Harry, Kate on his heels, and they get up there and now she can also see Harry. And she goes, the th- other ghost wasn't Lily. It was Harry all along. And Harry's like, I'm so sorry, Daniel. It wasn't me. It was the man who runs the liquor ring. You said you were out and he said he needed you dead because what if you talked to the coppers? And Daniel's like, I would have never told anybody. And Harry goes, I know, but he didn't believe me. And so he made me do it. He made me do it, Daniel. And Daniel's like, it's okay. I forgive you, Harry. Harry fades into nothingness. And he's standing there. And he goes, why am I still here? And Kate's like, I thought that would be your business. And then Lily's ghost steps out. (laughs) Hell yes. Ghosts, 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 ghosts. (laughs) So many ghosts. Ghosts on ghosts on ghosts. And she's like, Daniel, I'm here to take you away. And Daniel nods. And then right then the clock strikes midnight, sending that this is the time that he normally goes away because he normally, you know, goes away between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And he steps forward to take Lily's hand and Kate watches him go. And he turns and goes, Kate, my Christmas gift to you (gasps) is that someday you will love again. And Kate goes, I think I have love. (laughs) And then fade to black. (gasps) Oh, boy. Okay, we're in the home stretch, folks. We're in the last act. We're in the home stretch. What is our happy endings? Okay, so back to Finding Santa, where there is a problem. And the massive problem is that Clint is watching the football game, the Christmas Eve football game on his phone. (laughs) When the parade hasn't started yet, and he's not around any children or anything, and he's got his beard pulled down, and they're like, how dare you, Clint? (laughs) You are Santa! And Leslie, the network executive, charges back into the scene like, where is Ben, the perfect Santa? What kind of operation are you running here? Do you realize the terrible position you've left me in? This whole parade is made or broken on a guy in a Santa costume. (laughs) And Clint leans out of the float to watch this. It's not even a sled he's in. It's just like a big chair. He leans out of the chair, looks over, comes back, and the camera follows him. And suddenly, Ben dressed as Santa is sitting next to him. Clint does a double take, and then Ben hoists him out of the float, and Grace fires him. And he's like, you can't fire me. My mom's the mayor. Mom, tell them who Santa is. And mom, the mayor, is like, get out of the sleigh, honey. He's like, no, I'm Santa. I'm Santa. I'm Chris Kringle. Fine. I'm going to watch the game then. I don't understand this man's motivations at all. And mom's just like, God, you're embarrassing me. I cannot stress enough that this is an adult man. (laughs) The parade happens. We do a little montage. There's some girls in color guard. There's people in stilts. There's a fire truck. Santa's being pulled by a pickup truck and he just kind of waves, which seems like something you could do with a broken arm. But now the parade is over. Santa gives off and a bunch of children run up to Ben dressed as Santa and he hands out candy canes and Grace approaches Santa while he's got a kid on his lap and she's like, thank you for coming back. And Ben, 
while in character as Santa, because there's a child right there is like, ho, 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 I'm Santa Claus. And she's like, hey, can we talk? And he's like, Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I am Santa. <laughs> and then Grace feels rebuffed and is sad. And she's like, oh, I'll go then. Not for God's sake. <laughs> And then this conflict is immediately resolved five seconds later when we cut to her sitting sadly on a bench and Benz runs up and he's like, hey, I've been looking for you. And she's like, I thought you didn't want to talk to me. He's like, I was Santa. There was a child on my lap. I wasn't going to break character. But then he's like, Grace, thank you for reminding me what Christmas is all about. And they both agree that they're going to find work-life balances. Grace is going to see if Caroline can handle the store more often, and maybe she can go see what Christmas is like in Boston and other places. And Ben's like, well, let me know how it is in Boston, because I'm staying in Green River. What? Because today, I saw the joy of Christmas again, and I finally understand how important my dad's work is. Playing Santa Claus may have been the opportunity of your lifetime, but I want your life. People need Santa. (laughs) And she's like, I thought you were writing a terrible book. And he's like, I can find a way to do both. I finally decided I don't want to write my shitty book. I want to write a shitty children's picture book about a town's quest to find Santa to bring him there for a Christmas parade. <laughs> but I need an illustrator. <laughs> is it, is, and it's like, oh, is this her Kokoro wish? This is her Kokoro wish. Is this a book that's done except for the art? She had a hastily established talent. I'm glad. And they're like, oh, this is a new beginning for both of us. And Grace is like, well, let's start from scratch. I need an Uber driver. And he's like, oh, you forgot to put in a destination. And she's like, oh, it's right about here. And then they smooch. <laughs> yep. And Grace's car is left in Boston forever. The destination is her bedroom. Exactly. 11 months later. What? We cut to Grace and Ben doing a book signing for Finding Santa, their picture book. Publishing does not happen that fast. (laughs) Oh, yes, it gets better. Ben says that he changed the dedication for the second printing. (laughs) Okay. This book did two different print runs within 11 months. It's a real book that definitely came out. Somehow, because I work in the publishing industry to a degree, this is the least realistic part of any of these films. (laughs) And so Ben hands a copy of the book to Grace and she reads the new dedication, which says, For Grace, who will forever be my Mrs. Claus. And then he gets down on one knee and proposes to her. (laughs) And then they kiss and he spins her around. And then she's like... You had to write that dedication before proposing. How do you know I'd say yes? And he's like, Santa knows all. And then they walk out (laughs) in the snow and they kiss and everyone claps. That was a big swing, buddy. That was not guaranteed. (laughs) 11 months. (laughs) 11 months. And that is the end of Finding Santa. They found him and then they wrote a book about it. They found a Santa. They found a Santa. They found a man who is cosmically forced to become Santa by forces <laughs> beyond his comprehension. But at least he's happy about it. Also, not for nothing, he always could have done Santa and been a writer. I feel like Santa's not a full-time thing. Yeah, no. You would think that, but the town's economy apparently relies upon this 365 Santa shop. 
And the Santa Academy that trains international Santas who can say Merry Christmas in any language. Also, I never mentioned this, but they do have a special textbook that only Santas should read. Oh, yeah. Standard operating procedure, but that only goes to employees. There's a Santa cult going on here. I'm just imagining Santa dispatch on the day that invariably that somebody calls in and is like, yeah, I'm in Sweden right now. Do I say anything about the blackface? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They train a Santa and he's like, hey, there's a Saint Nicholas here and he's he's looking pretty punchy. <laughs> <laughs> Should I leave? All right. So how does our rock opera end? We went on a journey with Santa's. Now we're in Idaho, because it's important that we're in Idaho. It is Christmas Eve. They are in front of Peter Gallagher's big house on stage. There is snow. I think it's fake. I think it's supposed to be fake. I'm going to tell you, we've reached the end of this film, and I kind of forgot. (laughs) They are about to start their big concert. Right before the concert starts, Jason, Marvel's agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., goes up to Quinn, and he's like, Hey, before this whole thing starts, I want you to know that I was never on board with the whole recording that song solo thing anyway, and also, I have talked to a lawyer, and we're giving your dad back his half of the publishing rights to all the music so that he can keep this house. Wow. Yeah, it happened really fast. He called a lawyer that works really quickly. Yeah, you know, music contracts and rights disputes are just just simple. They're notoriously easy to sort out, actually. <laughs> that office has been closed since November 30th. <laughs> Nobody is in that office right now. And so she's like, oh my god, thank you for helping my father. Also, still sorry about your dying dad. And then they kiss. And then... Peter Gallagher and Bruce Campbell, I think, play a song for real? Like, they play One December Night, which is the song about his dead wife at Christmas. Right. It's actually a good song. I feel like there's somewhere along the line they hired someone to write a good song. No way. I'm pretty sure Peter Gallagher himself sings it, and it's surprisingly good. (laughs) Oh, they never actually shell out the money for a real songwriter. (laughs) I mean, all I know is that it's a shockingly good song that I kind of want to throw into my playlist. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Performed by Peter Gallagher. Good for him. Oh, bless his heart. <laughs> it's at IMDb. That's the happy ending. I mean, I guess Bruce Campbell's still dying, but it is otherwise a happy ending. Old people gotta die at some point, am I right? <laughs> you know what? Old people do have to die at some point. And at least now they're old people friends together until he goes. So do the kids kiss about it? They kissed when the rights were renegotiated. But they are ancillary to the two old men. That's fair. Okay, so that's One December Night wrapped up. That's One December Night with the song One December Night, which is probably on Spotify for all the f*** I know. (laughs) Okay, how about Dear Santa? Okay. Santa, Love Actually Santa, whatever. Love Actually Santa, Love Actually Dear Santa, Always Santa. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All of those are real movies. Yeah. So Lily and her mom have decided they're going to deal with this whole I'm in love with this my Santa pen pal thing in a bit because they want to renew their Christmas tradition of going to this wishing well. Sure. They head out there despite the fact that it's f*** you cold. All the roads are closed because it's a blizzard. Fortunately, the boy that Lily likes has a snowmobile. So this kid comes by to lend them the snowmobile. And I'd never seen more Riz in an eight-year-old. It's terrific. (laughs) This kid's smooth. Does he have like spiked tips? 
No, he's just a regular eight-year-old kid, but he's just so chill and so smooth when it comes to like, yeah, you can borrow my snowmobile. I'll hang out in the kitchen. Don't worry about it. It's just this incredibly smooth kid. So this movie just has some incredible dudes, but just not the main lead. Yeah, every side character is the most dudes rock shit I've ever seen. (laughs) And anyway, so they head out to this wishing well and they have like, you know, they have a sad about the fact that, you know, Lily's dad is dead. Lily's mom's husband is dead. They miss him, blah, blah, blah. And at one point, Lily goes off on a bit of a tangent about like, you know, oh, you know, I always believed in magic, but maybe it's more important to, you know, make things happen yourself. And Lily's mom is immediately like, no, fuck you. Magic is real. (laughs) 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 Don't don't ever grow up. She specifically says, you promised me to stay a little girl forever, which that kid now has the potential to do the funniest thing anyone has ever done. (laughs) Oh, no. But anyway, they're having this heart to heart and all of a sudden they hear harness noises and they look over and hooray, author guy's <laughs> riding up in a literal one horse open sleigh. I- of course he is. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad one of us had a horse sleigh. Was that horse already harnessed? Has this horse been amateurly harnessed? I bet he has been. They show up. They do the whole confession scene. She's kind of mad at him, but they reconcile anyway. They kiss. They get in the sleigh to go and ride off. And they ride off into the sunset singing Jingle Bells. And that's the end of the fucking movie. (laughs) You know, there's got to be a horse sleigh somewhere. If there's hot cocoa, there's usually a horse sleigh. (laughs) Ghost town. All right. So we have a scene where Daniel and Lily are holding hands and walking towards the end. And then she's like, I get the feeling you don't actually want to leave with me. And he's like, I don't think I do. And she turns and she nods and she goes, I'm glad that you finally moved on because I had to as well. Well, you've been in like heaven or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) He's been in always winter, never Christmas. (laughs) And he kind of nods and she goes, go and he nods and it's the next morning it's christmas day kate is getting up and she's very sad because daniel's never going to show up again she's just kind of hovering by the christmas tree on her lonesome when the door swings open and in walks old man and mary and he's like guess who just bought the inn and mary's like it was me it's perfect for my bar upgrade and she's like i'm glad someone who loves the place has bought it and they're standing there and then old man gets a look in his eye and he goes i think you should go outside And she's like, okay. And she walks outside. And here's the confusing part. Okay. (laughs) This is the confusing part. This is the part that's confusing. (laughs) This is the confusing part. Just, okay. Because we suddenly flash to Daniel walking through the woods off the end property. So he's no longer attached to the inn, uh-huh. and he walks out of the woods, and she looks up, and she goes, Daniel! And she charges over to him, and they embrace, and she goes, you're back! And he goes, I decided that 12 days wasn't enough, because I wanted more. I wanted you. Uh-huh. And they kiss, and it fades to the end. Is he a ghost still? <laughs> Is he still dead? Or did he come back to life? Did God grant him- (laughs) Has he been resurrected? I don't know! I think God granted him a boon? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know! Is he going to live out the rest of his life? Is he now immortal? Does he get 13 days? I don't know! Is she just going to be f***ing a ghost from here on out? I guess! (laughs) Or did she die? Ah! Or did she die? I don't know. He decided that 12 days wasn't enough and now he's back. But is he still a ghost? I don't know. But that's the fade to black and there's nothing more. He can just unilaterally decide these things? 
Yeah. I guess all he had to do was get over his girlfriend while he was forced <laughs> to haunt the very place where he died that was full of memories of her. Checks out. Yeah. Easy. That's it. That's it. That's Christmas. That's Christmas, folks. That's Christmas. And I think with that, we can get to our final facts. Oh, wow. Annie, what's your final fact? You can't live your Dr. Santa dad's life. You have to do your own thing, like writing a terrible book. Kit, what's your final fact? (laughs) My final fact is that if a potato gun obsessed guy thinks that you're like having a new truck, you marry that man. (laughs) Jody, what's your final fact? My final fact is that the love of two old men is far more important than your petty relationships. It's legit. Mac, what's your final fact? Apparently, if you're a ghost <laughs> and you can give up the love of your other ghost to love a mortal, you can come back to life, probably. <laughs> That's how it works. Look it up. It's in the handbook of the deceased. It's not our fault. Yeah. It reads like stereo right instructions. <laughs> also, like, I made a joke about, like, reject modernity, embrace tradition, but there is a part of this that feels almost like the propaganda arm of the Christo-fascist movement. (laughs) Yes, which is interesting that it has been slowly moving into a slightly more secular direction over the years. Yeah, they're never particularly Christian. I love these stupid movies. Like, again, folks, hopefully, now that you've seen us lay these out, you can kind of see where all of these beats tend to line up. They're not, like, perfect overlays, but there are enough points where these things just keep happening in the same order, almost as though these people are cursed to, you know, see the 12 days of Christmas, except it's right before the 12 days of Christmas, over and over again. Falling in love each time, hoping that the next one will be the last. All of them are handsome and cur- yet cursed. Yep. There's a period where the Toronto Star owned Harlequin, the romance novel pun- publishing company. And I mentioned this specifically because it meant that my dad could send away for the Harlequin publishing guidelines, basically, that they had for every author who wrote for them. Ooh, like a style guide? Yeah, like the style guide. And it was very much like it was telling you what had to happen and when down to the page. It was definitely along these lines where it was like, this is why every Harlequin romance novel is the same. It's because they're all writing to the same guidelines. And the thing is that there are lots of people who will go back to these over and over again because that's honestly all they want. They don't want something that necessarily challenges you. You want to sit down and have a mindless night where two okay faces kind of kiss at the end and wear very color-blocked sweaters. (laughs) I also want to drink a bottle of wine in the process. Yes. And you know what? You don't have to be like emotionally or mentally stimulated in order to enjoy an entire bottle of wine with one of these on. (laughs) I don't know. Speak for yourself. I'm watching Reservation Dogs. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You talked and all I heard was the word bah humbug. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope we have been able to prove how while each of these might be slightly different, they are like a hot chocolate for your soul. Notably, oh god, it's chicken soup for the soul. Oh, oh god, oh, here we are. No, 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 we have to get, we have to get out of this right now. Hey, remember, remember when chicken soup for the soul produced like a knockoff Five Nights at Freddy's movie? What was with that? Oh, uh, I don't okay. remember that. Oh, it's time to ollie out yeah, of this. We, are, <laughs> we gotta land this plane. Oh no! <laughs> All right, Jody, thank you so much for coming back and talking about you, Christmas Jody. movies. Where can people find your things, Jody? They can find me on the internet at longtalljody.com. I make comics. They can find me on Blue Sky at longtalljody. And I want to throw out a bonus rec for the holiday season to go watch A Built More Christmas, which is about 
a lady who was writing a movie during Christmas, and then through the help of Jonathan Frakes and a magic hourglass, <laughs> she goes back in time to the 1940s to a different movie set and falls in love with a doomed movie star. Oh, you were telling me about this one. Is Jonathan Frakes just playing himself? It's false. No way. I would like to think Jonathan Frakes is playing himself. He's like the <laughs> butler of a mansion. Not this time. Pure fiction. <laughs> but that's me. It's fantastic. Also, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what Jody can talk about in any given time. But like, she has so many cool comic lettering jobs coming up and I'm very excited to see them. I do. The biggest one, yes, like I said, I make my own comics, I letter comics, but my biggest lettering job that is publicly announced is that I am lettering a middle grade Godzilla graphic novel that should be out from IDW sometime in August. Look forward to that one. And also in the meantime, check out all of Jody's fantastic comics. She's so good at them. Oh, I'll be your Santa. Ooh. Give me a beard. I can sit in a chair. <laughs> Ah, uh, okay. I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. You can download it wherever you find podcasts. We are edited by Lucas Brown, who is delightful, and you can find his archive on the Math of You podcast. If you would like to support us, a like, rating, comment, wherever you find us is always super nice. Come talk to us on Blue Sky. We are on social media places at CRC Podcast, but our website is crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. If you want to support us with dollars, our Patreon can give you even just a dollar a month early episodes of I Will Fight You. And you can also find show notes and stuff for our other shows, Gem Jammer and Date Me Damn It, on patreon.com slash the gem jam. So until next time, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And I'm Jody. <laughs> and we have fought you. And then a woman steps out and he whispers, Holly. <laughs> of course her name's Holly. Yeah. Uh, or Lily. Sorry, it's Lily. It's not Holly. Oh, it's Lily. Oh, Mackenzie. It, it, I know. It should be Holly. The roller coaster you just took I me just on. I just took you on the roller coaster. I'm so sorry. Hang on. The cat's requesting to be let into my office. Well, the cat was very scared. There was a ghost. There was a ghost. Jody, I'm going to make a joke basically specifically for us in this chat. Uh, uh, so yeah. this is like when Mud Mountain won't play Muddy Boots <laughs> in Rex Morgan MD, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they just want to hear Muddy Boots. They just want to hear Muddy Boots. And now all they're getting is self-help bullshit. <laughs> anyway. Rex Morgan MD is a comic strip. And it's currently about self-help and a country musician <laughs> and a con man. And Renee Valusa. <laughs> <laughs> Renee Belusco. <laughs> anyway, soap opera strips are wild, folks. Sorry, I just stuffed some milk duds into my mouth. So <laughs> you picked wow. a really interesting point in time to do that. Milk duds? <laughs> Why would you do that? The caramel snacks? <laughs> you put caramel in your mouth while recording? Because you're eating caramel snacks while recording a podcast? They're really good. Mackenzie! I'm starving myself for this art. <laughs> it's, it's full. Of, it's caramel. You want to you want to chase that up with a nice smooth butter? <laughs> I'll chase up some water. It's crispy and crunchy. Bart Simpson loves it. Here we go. Milk that swallowed. <laughs> oh, thank God. Good God. Our long national nightmare is over. Good job, Mackenzie. <laughs>
who went to the bathroom? <laughs> who was peeing quietly this whole time? <laughs> Mackenzie, did you go to the bathroom? Mackenzie was <laughs> Oh, perhaps so. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, sure. Okay. So then our main character comes along, Lily's mom. Lily goes Lily's to relieve- mom has got- That's basically the theme song of this movie. 